Hey there everybody and welcome to a very special edition of Link to the Cast where we're not talking about video games. Once every two years usually we get a round table together and we talk about a major football tournament but unfortunately this year the world ended and there was no football tournament so uh, we're going to hop in the Wayback Machine here and we're going to talk about Euro 96 and I guess we're going to call this Euro 96 Revisited Revisited uh, here this week on Link to the Cast and I've got an expert panel assembled with me. I'm your host by the way Dave Ryan and I am joined Firstly, I will say, Mark will not be joining us on the podcast this week, unfortunately, as he's away on assignment, or as this hastily written statement that has been handed to me reads, Mark protested at the shambolic condition of our training pitch at the pre-tournament training camp. He can be seen now walking his dog Triggs every night on the news or in his new book Marco out next year. Uh, joining us on the panel on this show... Firstly, my regular Link to the Cast co-host, a man who will spend this programme reliving the dizzying highs and the ultimate heartbreak of his country's journey in this tournament, all while lamenting this being many years before he could try to make a reference to Marcus Alonso's hair that would make any sense. It's Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you? Yeah, man, I'm great. I, uh, this, I'm very excited to be talking about Euro 96. It, it's a tournament, I think, for people of my generation, it, it means an awful lot to us. So, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty hyped here. And I'm also very excited about the other two guests that we have assembled on this panel. Thank you for the excellent segue, my friend. First up joining us, we have got, uh, you may know him from the Days of Thunder podcast, where he and some handsome devil get moderately trashed and watch professional wrestling from the 90s, where all sports were better. And now I'm sure he's here to tell us which Euro 96 players would fit best into WCW factions. It's Lee Malone. Lee, how are you? I'm confused. Are we not talking about wrestling? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, night off. Night off, pal. <laughs> Who's that other voice? I don't know that guy. <laughs> I, I, I now worry that you're keeping Lee in some sort of basement type scenario where you only bring him out to talk about WCW and nothing yeah, yeah, else. Yeah. Once every two weeks, I, I crack open the door, turn on the light, come on, out, out the microphone. It's still 1999, isn't it? <laughs> and it always will be. In my heart, in my heart, it always is. Yeah, I'll never talk to Lee unless it's a conversation based in the 1990s. It's a rule I have. It's a very strange relationship we have, isn't it? Yeah, it's truly bizarre. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm not too bad. I am very happy to be here to talk about Euro, 90, Euro 96, probably one of my favourite summers. Excellent, excellent. And rounding out the panel, last but not least, it's the podfather himself, a man whose quadruple success as Roma manager in the 04-05 season is the stuff of championship manager legend. He is the host of the Progress Paradise over at PWTorch.com and a man who is down to chat mid-90s Newcastle at the drop of a hat. It's Alan Cunahan. Alan, how are you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. It's off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am wonderful, Dave. Even more wonderful. Blown away, speechless from your spectacular introduction. Oh, just just briefly lost consciousness. <laughs> briefly lost consciousness, indeed. It was daydreaming about Philippe Albert. Were you still sorting out Totti's new contract in the background? Though? <laughs> yeah. I am. I am perpetually distracted by Francesco Totti, my main man, my best friend. Um, yeah, just uh, the central point of my life. Um, have you have you become a mentor to him yet in the game, Alan? Um, I I I don't think uh, Toddy needs mentoring. I I see myself more as facilitating Toddy to be a mentor for the the new young hot prospects in my team, like Fabio Giannini and Scott Palmer, and um, who else we got? Uh, um, 
I'm trying to think of some other uh, fake name players who, because uh, I've been playing the game so long that they are. Regens. So it's got uh, regens, exactly. Yeah. And then some who aren't so much regen, but still young, hot prospects like a Cherno Samba, oh, who yes. has been starting to really find his feet and uh, uh, wow the crowds at the uh, at the stadium, the Olympico. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful time. I'm. Um, I'm living many lives between uh, Euro 96, Newcastle United 1997, Roma in 2000s, and it's uh, I'm trying to ignore 2020 in real life. That's uh, it's always a good bet. And, and it's fair to say that uh, your uh, championship manager Roma save is probably the most praise we're going to heap on an Italian side on this show. Uh, but more more you, of that later. You might be surprised, Dave Ryan. I oh. am coming oh. here with the hot takes. Um, I am coming here with to maybe uh, quash some um, uh, narratives that I feel disproving that have maybe just kind of been rolled over through the years without any critical analysis for them but i've done the critical analysis i've done the homework i've watched the tape i have (laughs) during this summer watched i would say all but about four games from euro 96 and uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try and throw some uh long-standing narratives on their head here Before we get into Euro 96, um, it would be remiss of us not to mark um, the, the, the huge and significant uh, bit of news last week that was the passing of former Republic of Ireland manager Jack Charlton. Um, and I think because we normally do a video game podcast, me and Lee normally do a wrestling podcast, we really don't have another avenue to discuss uh, the legacy of Jack Charlton. So I feel like between the fact that this is our only chance and that we happen to be recording this on the day that that, that Big Jack was put to rest, uh, I think we, we should kind of touch on it. He was the uh, he was the Republic of Ireland manager appointed before I was even born. He was uh, he provided like he brought Irish football onto a, a new, bigger, bolder stage than had ever even been conceived of uh, before his reign. And for a lot of people my age and specifically maybe a couple of years older than me, um, he provided some of the great football moments uh, of childhood. And if I just go to Lee first, uh, Lee, memories of, of the Jack Charlton era or, or the man himself or, or, or what, what he meant to Ireland. I mean... The man changed the perception of football in Ireland. Like, I don't think it can be overestimated just how huge an impact he had in this whole and the whole country. Not just like football fans, but the whole country. Like, I'm too young to remember Euro '88. I was only two at the time. But like, I was born just before he was made manager, and like, I I remember little, small little bits from Italia '90 and all all the stuff that went on around it. But like your uh, World Cup ninety four is when like I just remember being in love with the Irish team, and just from the, from that young age, like just being so invested in it in your national team, it was such a big thing, and just like I said, the general perception, like everybody was a football fan. Like when Ireland games were on, the country stopped, and that was unheard of. 
for sure. Um, what about yourself, Alan? Kind of growing up around that same time and, and kind of memories of this would be the, the first time that we had uh, arrived on the World Cup stage in, in 1994 and kind of, um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, what what is the legacy that Jack has had on the country and he gave everybody a lift and, you know, some people are even giving him credit for kickstarting the Celtic Tiger, which I think is a little bit overblown, but it's got to be said that I think there's a whole generation of, of people, uh, specifically around our age, who probably wouldn't be... Uh, either football fans or as big into football had it not been for kind of growing up on the crest of the wave Jack Charlton brought to the Irish team. Yeah, USA 94, like Lee, that was a big deal for me. That was when I'd say the tail end of the 93-94 season was when I was getting into football. I think I had probably uh, locked in on Newcastle as my team at the end of that season. And um, then, yeah, just naturally... As with any, especially of our generation, where there's, like, less things to, um... It's not like now where, like, kids will have... Lee, as you can attest, there's, like, a million different things being thrown at children now. And, like, mm-hmm. it's it's hard for any one thing to kind of get their attention. But when we were kids, it was like, okay, I'm getting into football. And then there's probably, like, a two-month period where you just drown yourself in football like you are learning everything about it and and then that carries through the years following it or be it wrestling or be it teenage mutant ninja turtles or whatever it's you just become such a super fan so quickly um and that was me with football i went from absolute nothing didn't like it didn't if if people put it on around me i'd like walk out my dad wasn't a football fan at all so i had kind of no real influence at home to be a football fan but once i started to like it oh i was i was away and could not be stopped and when that usa 94 came along it just i think it cemented it so that like i've gone back through my collection of match magazines and like i've got a a few fleeting ones kind of in early 94 and then i've got one that has romario on the front holding the world cup trophy and then like after that point i've got like every single i could see like week 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 every single issue of match magazine for like the next however number of years so really was the thing i think cemented um my football fandom and ireland being in it obviously resulted in it getting a lot more coverage and publicity over here and if it hadn't got that i don't know if it would have had that impact on me and jack charlton was obviously a huge influence in us a being there and a and b being able to compete and also having a really good team there was a lot of really quality players in that team then um but uh yeah the things i remember about jack charlton are one that I found him incredibly intimidating as a kid. I was like, oh, Jesus. Like, that was what a football, that was what a full, a stern football manager was to me. I was too young to have been around Brian Clough. Been around him. Like, I was like in the dressing rooms of Brian Clough. Right? <laughs> you arrived at the academy a couple of years too late. <laughs> so he had his trials at Forest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, uh, so, like, I, I never really... I just heard about him. I never really saw him, like, in interviews or anything like that. But when you'd see Jack Charlton, I was always, like, such a big, tall man and had that kind of stern face. And uh, um, 
yeah, it was like, yeah, you wouldn't mess with him. And then the other thing I remember was Eamon Dunphy, famous pundit here on TV over here, constantly messing with Jack Charlton, trying to ruffle his feathers in a feud that they had that went on for however many number of years. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that was a big thing that I remember with, with Jack back in those days. But uh, yeah, he was... Um, he was definitely a legend, one of the iconic sporting figures of my childhood, for sure. Yeah, I think it was, I was at 88 or 90 where, um, I think it might have been 90 where Dunphy had the I'm ashamed to be Irish speech. That, that was 90, yeah, after yeah, the, and then it was the Egypt game. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, now that you've said Egypt, yeah, I remember. And I think it was 94 then where he fucked the pet across the, <laughs> across the studio in, in rage. Um, so yeah, that was like, that was some prime Dunphy in those years. Uh, I remember cause like USA 94, I would have kind of, I, I turned five during that tournament. So I, I don't really have a lot of memories, um, of it. I do remember the, uh, all the different kind of, uh, companies cashing in on Ireland being at the tournament and having like collectibles. So I remember like the collector's coins that had like the, the heads of each of the players engraved into them. I can't remember who did that. Um, and I remember that was it the Kellogg's had the uh, the the cards that like the stats cards for each player that you could collect in bowls of cereal. I think. Dave, I'm gonna blow your mind. Go for it. I could have easily been drinking out of it right now, but I have a different glass selected in my glass cabinet. I have a World Cup uh, trophy shaped Coca Cola glass that I got in a petrol station around that oh, world wow. cup that's amazing <laughs> it's uh it's it, it moved out of home with me it moved into my apartment with me and it moved into my house with me so yeah that'll that's be incredible. with me for the rest of my life can you I please think. tweet that <laughs> i would love to yeah. see that for sure yeah. the the coca-cola logo is kind of faded off it but uh um yeah <laughs> to be fair if that's all that's wrong with it after all these years you've done very well to take yeah. it out. See, I, I, I would never take that out of cabinet for fear of letting it fall or something like <laughs> Now you've got me paranoid. Now that you've said that, you might have jinxed I might need to just keep it under lock and key now. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, of course, so I, I was a little bit too young for for m- most, if not all, of Jack's. Like, I, I kind of remember us um, bombing out of the, the playoffs, losing to Netherlands, uh, a, a playoff that we would avenge several years later and the World Cup qualifiers. But um Mostly, I, I I don't remember. It's kind of just as a kind of fan of the game and somebody who digs into his history, uh, really then thoroughly understanding and hearing what a lot of players from the time had to say about the man. Uh, but Jack, from from your point of view uh, on Jack Charlton, and then we'll move on to the f- tournament finally, uh, you're across the water there. Obviously, you've got a lot of family back home in Ireland. So there's obviously, there's, as you've said before on our show, there's always been a bit of you that roots for the Republic of Ireland. So looking at this man, this uh, this giant of a man coming from uh, the, the north of England, uh, who in his own right had a great playing career, obviously a World Cup winner and uh, had a successful career at Leeds himself. Um then moves to management in Republic of Ireland and um, changed the game for us. What was your kind of, do you have any memories of Jack Charlton's Republic of Ireland? Yeah, hundred percent. I, uh, I, the first world cup moment I remember is, is uh, Ray Houghton and scoring that goal in, against, against um, Italy in, in USA 94. And I, I, I think I'd been over to Ireland maybe twice at that point um, to visit my family and stuff. So there is like a, a part of me that that did feel like I was a little bit Irish as well, like that that just because of my family and stuff. So I remember being extremely excited when that goal went in, and I think having no team 
to root for in that competition because we bombed out with with Graham Taylor and it had been an absolute disaster. I had a lot of affection and, and I did want Ireland to do really well, so that's a real special result. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember him blowing up on the touchline as well uh, against some like absolutely random FIFA official who I've got to say has ticked some brass balls to to be wanting to have an argument with Jack Charlton, but. Uh, over here, I think it's just, uh, you know, he is part of the only time that the English football team have ever actually put their both their best feet forward and, and won a tournament. In, and he was there alongside Bobby Moore, the centre-half for the World Cup 66 team. He was part of a an incredibly successful era at Leeds United, uh, who had a, a pretty close, intense rivalry with, with my favourite team at Chelsea. And you can go back and watch some of those brutal brutal games and some of the Charlton tackles that he's putting in there along with like Ron Harris's tackles for Chelsea it's just like absolute carnage to watch through a modern filter and um, it's something special uh, when you can stay at a club for your whole career like that like he did at at Leeds he played like 600 games for Leeds won everything that there was like League Cup League FA Cup pretty much everything you can want to win and you know he him and his brother sadly fell out a little bit, but like the last Jack Charlton moment that I remember is him presenting Bobby Charlton with a with like a lifetime achievement award and and his like saying that he thinks the best player he's ever seen before in his life is his own brother and it's really special that he got to grow up with him and everything. Like that's the last time I remember seeing Jack Charlton in public and before because I know you had Alzheimer's and stuff and like that is despite all of the other memories I've mentioned like that is really special it's just that for whatever you want to say about Jack Charlton he is a a lovely gentlemanly type of guy who loved football and his family and his friends clearly meant a lot to him um and yeah as 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 much as we joke about being fishing sorry don't forget fishing. fishing. fishing yeah but as much as we joke and we're stern and stuff like Jack Charlton it's a fucking great guy um and he had the sort of career in football that many people could dream about and the fact that the guy is you know like a member of of the british empire and has the freedom of ireland as well and is loved equally in both countries how rare is that venn diagram overlap it's it's very rare so what a special Indeed. guy jack charlton was. yeah just jack charlton jack lazell the only the only men loved in both countries for sure <laughs> <laughs> all oh, the jacks <laughs> Did you guys hear, sorry Dave, did you guys hear, it might be like super famous and everyone knows it, but I uh, just saw it and had never heard it before, but I saw it in that clip uh, when Jack died a couple of days ago, the um, story about Packy Bonner and the Pope. Oh yeah, it's this, um, he, go on Alan, tell it, yeah, I, I did, I okay. did read this. Okay, so um, basically they, uh, Jack with his sway and everything that he had at Italia 90, he was able to get the Irish team an audience with the Pope, which for Ireland, a, a pretty religious Catholic country at that time, especially, that was a really major deal. So they have this audience with the Pope. It's on film. Uh, the Pope's having the banter with them. He's telling them that he used to be a goalkeeper. Or no, he asks, um, who's the goalkeeper? And Packy Bonner stands up and says, me. And uh, he says when he was a kid, he was a goalkeeper. So he's going to have a, a special eye on, on Packy Bonner. Um, this was right before the Italy game that we get knocked out in. And uh, Italy win 1-0. And uh, Toto Scalacci uh, scores the, the winner. And it's uh, 
not Paki Bonner's finest moment. Um, he uh, he maybe could have made a better effort stopping the goal. Um, and uh, the match ends and. Uh, uh, backstage, I almost said like it was a wrestling show. Uh, in the dressing room, <laughs> in gorilla after in gorilla, <laughs> in the dressing room, uh, um, uh, Packy Bonner is kind of a bit dejected, and uh, Jack is is puts an arm around him and goes, "Go on there, Pack now. Go on in the shower. Get get yourself changed. You're all right. You're all right." And just kind of being supportive, and and Packy's happy with that. And he walks into the shower, and then Jack turns around to Andy Townsend. And he takes a big puff of a cigarette, blows it out, and just goes calmly to Andy Townsend. The Pope would have fucking saved that. (laughs) (laughs) Great story. Absolute legend of a man. Uh, Look, I'd say my my favourite tribute show I've heard from so far, the the second Captain's World Service put up a podcast uh, about an hour and a half of a tribute to Jack uh, that includes a kind of never before heard in its full extent interviews uh, interview with uh, Owen from second captains um it's really really good encompassing kind of his whole career uh his roots up in the north of england his playing career with leeds in england uh his uh his political activism which is something i i didn't hear about until relatively recently where he went on on strike with the miners and him and his wife w- would help out the miners kind of uh bring them to and from the picket line and stuff him so. and brian clough pretty much led the charge for um for like a, a lot of the working men's groups in this country uh, back then they were like the the chief sort of socialist football managers and i think a lot of people remember that about cloffy but not a lot of people remember that about jack so it's cool to see that being republicized yeah um so yeah check out that i, I definitely recommend that but uh we'll, we'll leave that to one side for for a while rest easy big man and let's finally get into the chat of euro 96 uh and and it, it's tough to start with anybody except jack here because, you know, coming into this tournament, England hosting, 30 years after the World Cup, you've got a, a team, if not a wider country, full of hope. you got Badil and Skinner on the TV and in the charts. Uh, that summer in England, uh, Jack, must have been absolutely fucking bedlam. Like a huge sense of excitement. Um, watching back some of the coverage and, and what some of the players have said, the you know it doesn't feel like they were they were as fancied as history says they were for the tournament but you know you've always got to fancy yourself as the hosts and and what was the feeling coming into that summer well i think you summed quite a bit of it up there pretty well i i think it was just a very culturally important time um for britain i think we'd come through the sort of dirge and recession and the shit of the 80s uh, and we've managed to make it kind of into the 90s and then all of a sudden like early 90s you get this explosion of, of music when you start the Manchester scene and stuff like that and then that kind of naturally progresses into Britpop and then you know from having a culture that we're, we're kind of obsessed with listening to music being produced by America especially bands and stuff like that you, you get all of these young like English bands and it just generates a, a, a positive wave and a positive feeling just in the country like so as you said Dave it's our first tournament since since 66 so hence that's where the whole you know football's coming home thing kind of kicks off like the Premier League had started four years before this you know it kind of revolutionized football in this country which had been stayed and kind of died in the war ever since we we were banned from Europe in the in the mid 80s um, so I, I think that 
something like that had just kind of maybe changed everyone's perceptions of of the brand like i know it's weird to talk about brands but it was kind of that rebranding of it kind of took away from that old stodgy hooliganized shitty version of football that we had before made something fresh uh so teams are kind of back into europe and and funnily enough, right before this tournament, and um, B Sky B, who who bought the rights to the Premier League, just renewed the contract, and it went from three hundred and four million over the course of four years to the next four years being six hundred and seventy million. So Euro ninety six, I think, for a lot of chairmen, and and as you would see, like when we talk about some of these players, it was like watching fucking QVC or something because they're like, oh, I like the look of him. I'm going to be buying that guy. Uh, yeah, it it was one of the last tournaments. It felt like to me, and I don't know if you lads agree with this, where a lot of the players that were in the tournament kind of felt like there was still an exoticism about them. Like, unless you were the sort of guy that played Championship Manager 2, obviously, like like Alan might have done, or or if you were a very enthusiastic football journalist, uh, you probably yeah. wouldn't have known about a lot of the players in the tournament. And th- yeah, you, you would have had to have been reading... Uh, like magazines and things like that because this is very kind of uh, like primordial internet era yeah. like you wouldn't you wouldn't have been there's not even close to the the access you you have now to uh information let alone actual games of football you know uh, i was trying to think like what other leagues people would be aware of so like gazetta football italia would have started four years before this yeah, so that, like, that's literally it like the only other the only other one um i was gonna say because it's still a couple of years before like don't Bravo eventually get in the Eredivisie, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. But yeah, it would be Gazetta Football uh, Italia. I, 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 I think I think at that time, weren't Eurosport doing Eurogoals? They were, but not many people had Eurosport. Like, cable TV and stuff in this country was was dead in its infancy like so you had the satellite uh which is how you got sky sports and stuff like that and eurosport mm. probably would have been on sky but the amount of people that had actually invested in that was was quite low so i think seeing things like Eurogoals and stuff would would have been for a lot of you know regular families who are going to be watching this really hard to track down i would say Oh yeah oh yeah i'm not saying like regular regular you know fans are kind of dipping in for the tournament or watching but i remember like as obviously we had sky for a good majority of my my youth and i remember euro goals was just like whenever i'd come home from school i'd flick on eurosport and see oh is it on you is it on you that like for me that was like destination watching like you get to see football from belgium like who the fuck watches football from belgium <laughs> yeah like oh mark will they have football there <laughs> <laughs> um, but like that like that for me was like oh god that was like like you said it was so exotic yeah and you're hearing all these names and like i think i want i think at, at a certain point they even had a little league of highlights Oh. on euro gold and it was just like like i i can remember i remember the, the qualifiers for world cup 94 and ireland were playing spain and the one name that always stuck with me was zuby zaretta the goalkeeper mm. and i was just fascinated by this guy like just the name i was like oh i have to learn more and it was just like whenever you'd get to see these like united playing the champions league playing barcelona and it's like oh there's zuby zaretta yeah and like you, you'd, you'd just come across these names and he'd just be like you said, like you'd be trying to find out more, but the, the resources were so limited. And like Euro '96, I mean, me as a ten-year-old, this was just like this was heaven. Like you're getting to see all these new players, hearing all these names, and then you'd be moaning. About, well, I mean, me personally, I'd be moaning about the commentators not saying certain names correctly. <laughs> and the names would stick with you as well, which is again a thing like yeah. again talking about being a kid back in those days. Maybe not so much for kids now. I don't know, but certainly 
uh, for kids more than adults like because you have less knowledge in your brain when something comes in such as the name Zuby Zaretta, it's going to just stick and lodge in your brain more than if you just hear a random... If someone tells me a name of a Spanish goalkeeper now, like an hour later, I won't remember it. So it's... Uh, There's a good one yeah. called Kepa that you might have... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, like it's interesting because like I, I don't know if this is the... I don't think it's fully demystified after this tournament, all the exotic players coming in, but it's certainly, I think this is the tipping point where like after this tournament, kind of you find people more and more informed as technology improves, as games become available in different countries. Like I know I was still getting surprised on and off in World Cup 2002. It's like the Miroslav Klose shows up and you're like, what the fuck? This guy is just like the best centre forward I've seen in ages. Yeah. What is going on? Uh, but by definitely by you know t- 10 years after this tournament like uh, Germany 2006 I, I like I think I knew I don't, I don't think there was a, a surprise for me in that tournament there was such an, a wealth of information out there that I was just readily consuming uh, but it's funny that you know we talk about it being kind of uh, exotic and mystical for fans and as, as Jack kind of alluded to there it was for managers as well it's almost like managers themselves didn't know how these players and like oh Jesus you know like you said QVC Jack where <laughs> That's what it felt they, like. they're just yeah, they're just delighted to have these players trucked out in front of them and go, oh, I'll have him. I'll have him. You know, might make an inquiry about this guy. Yeah. Uh, so, before, like, um, another thing I wanted to say, like, culturally, uh, like, I, I kind of touched on it a bit earlier, but this was massive. Like, so I looked up what the number one singles around this time were. Um, so, s- slightly before the tournament, it was Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit by Gina G. Great song. Yeah, that classic. Uh, Killing Me Softly was actually number one during the tournament. <laughs> Not as good as Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit, but also a very good song. Um, so, <laughs> Three Lions being number one bookended, Killing Me Softly in the middle, and then ever so slightly after the tournament ended, maybe within a sort of week or two, we had wannabe by the spice girls which was number one for like seven weeks so this is like the start of that kind of massive you know you had the brit pop coming out from the indie culture but then there was like the mainstream sort of british pop explosion from the spice girls uh jerry halliwell and the the union jack dress at the brit awards that's what i that's what i think of when i I think of that and tony blair when i think of uh england in 96 97 (laughs) i was yeah funnily enough i've got tony as thankfully those two images don't merge together at any point they stay distinct does anyone know what the um i was going to ask you i'm going to throw this out to you guys and see just to see if you've done any research does anyone know what the actual official tournament theme tune was because it wasn't three lions no, it wasn't, and I did read this earlier, and was it like, ugh, something about the theme tune was then co-opted for Three Lions? No, so it was called We're All In This Together by Simply Red, by Manchester's favourite son, Simply Red, and it just about cracked the top 15 in the UK charts before quickly disappearing, even though it was played at the opening and closing ceremonies of the tournament. <laughs> Um, there's also the summer of Oasis Gibbs at uh, Nebworth they played for like 250,000 people over two days and the bill is just the most 90s ass band bill you ever see right so it's Oasis obviously headliners but you've got Ocean Colour Scene the Manic Street Preachers Chemical Brothers the Prodigy (laughs) Cast Cooler Shaker and the Charlatans like that just Straight sounds stuff. like TFI Friday's entire bill That's, for a season. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I can just remember all those bands' names from being posters on my brother's wall. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 what I was thinking was the competition slogan, which is "Football Comes Home," and that was brought to uh, that was brought into three lines, obviously. Uh, that rundown of bands sounded like the back of a I don't know now thirty two or something like that. No, like 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 a CD you get with smash hits or something back in the nineties. A cassette, not even a CD. <laughs> Just quickly to cover Alan's point as well. Um, so we'd had up to 96, 17 years of conservative government starting in 1979 with Maggie Thatcher having three terms and then the utterly forgettable image of John Major who'd been Prime Minister for four years. And I, w- within less than a year, we had an absolute blowout election victory uh, with Tony Blair who then invited like members of all of these bands like Spice Girls, Oasis, Blur, etc. all to kind of celebrate in the victory of what, felt like a genuine youth movement um you know before five or six years later and he took us all to war but like the less about that that we knew at the time was going to be the case um so it did feel like it did feel like there was a cultural revolution happening in the country and euro 96 was a centerpiece of that for me as a football fan yeah and tony blair was one to jump on that because even at the the 96 labor party conference they sang labor's coming home oh there you go Uh, so yeah that's yeah never one to miss an opportunity big tony uh alan um across the water obviously we like we had said earlier we kind of uh we didn't make it we lost in the playoffs in the netherlands but uh, as yourself and lee both said like there's a tremendous sense of excitement when there's a tournament happening essentially on your doorstep um it's kind of like you were both at a great age that time to become football obsessives and what are your memories leading into that tournament and, and kind of what memories were stoked by by watching some of the, the hype footage for the opening game uh, when oh, the revisited geez. stuff started airing? So many, so many memories were stoked through watching this. Uh, um, but uh, the I was so... I would have had my 11th birthday during the tournament, I think, or just before the tournament. Um, and uh, so, yeah, like you said, perfect age i think like two years earlier i was nine football was a new thing to me i didn't i was excited but i didn't fancy myself an expert or anything like that two years later 11 years old oh i thought i knew it all i (laughs) i i'm sure i i I don't remember having the sticker album but i'm sure i had the sticker album i certainly would have had lots of pullouts whatever coverage match we're doing it in i was a match guy instead of a shoot guy um whatever coverage they were doing uh, leading into the tournament i would have read it back to front over and over so i felt i knew everything there was to know about all the teams in this tournament um I was, uh, Jack will appreciate this, I was an unabashed, full-on England fan for this tournament. Cheers, mate. <laughs> I, was, I was caught up in the wave of, because like the Premiership was, I, I probably didn't even know League of Ireland existed at this point. Um, <laughs> I Sorry, Bo's Johnny. You were driving, yeah, daggers through Johnny's <laughs> Sorry, Bo's Johnny. <laughs> Um, and uh, I just knew like to me the premiership was the home league and in all the English guys were the home the home teams and it didn't it didn't uh, it's certainly the fact that they were actually at home just made that even more so Um, they were just so through the lens with which I was watching this tournament they were just so portrayed as like the baby faces like there was like the punditry it is like unabashed 
bias. Um, it's it's ridiculous. And uh, so, like, I was caught up in that. And I remember for the first game having... Um, I remember sitting on the end of the couch with the, the cassette of Tree Lions um, right beside me, having just played it before the, the, the first match started. And uh, yeah, I was I was well up for it uh, when England took to uh, the pitch against uh, Switzerland. Lee, like you said, one of the best summers ever for you uh, growing up. And this is like one of those... Um, this tournament was the first to be expanded into 16 teams, which feels quaint now that the Euro 2021 is going to have 24 uh, by comparison. But uh, I, I know if I was the right age, you know, like if I, if I was a couple of years older, I was a bit more cognizant of things at the time, I would have been saying to myself, wow, I'm getting twice as much football. Um, so was this a summer you just found yourself parked morning, noon and night in front of the TV? Oh, it was like very much like we out on the road playing football and like somebody will have timed okay this match is on at a certain time and then be right everyone into somebody's house to watch the match then back out at half time back in for the second half <laughs> then back out to play until the next match starts and it was very much like that all summer and it was a glorious summer as well like just the weather was as they always seem to be when you're a kid <laughs> yeah if you go back and watch the highlights like it, it looked lovely like every single day of the of the tournament Unlike this summer where it's rained for the majority yeah. for some reason. Shocking. That's because we didn't have the Euros. That's why. Um, yeah. Just a totally uh, course year. Yeah, because yeah, I, I just think you remember like when I was, um, you know, the first couple of tournaments that uh, like I was really kind of old enough to be like, no, I want to watch the football. Like, so France 98, I watched a lot of, but I remember, I think uh, I was waking up. The, the, the In 2002 wasn't the first game at the, the Korea-Japan World Cup at like half 7 seven in the morning. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. So I was waking up every morning for those games and we were like, whatever games were on would be on on the TV tray in school because we were just finishing sixth class when that tournament was on. So the teachers had already given up. Um, so we were watching a lot of football and we got the day off for um, the Germany game and, um, Kino. and we watched this... We watched the Saudi Arabia game in in school, and I think the Cameroon game was on a Saturday. But um, yeah, just like you just when you hear there's just this festival of football going on for the whole summer, it's like you just cannot get enough of it. Uh, we'll we'll go through the groups now in a second. But one thing I want to get uh, a bit of kind of Jack's perspective on from the from the English point of view is something we had discussed earlier on before recording. And this, he knows exactly where I'm going with this. And this, you know, it, it had always been there, at least the last few tournaments. But, but Jack, to you, is this the tournament where the level of scrutiny England were getting from the press went into overdrive? Um, because, like, so we've had, Bobby Robson has been complaining about it for years. But uh, in a documentary I was watching earlier, Alan Shearer in particular noticed it was just the whole squad felt enormous pressure coming into this tournament, both kind of in a general sense from like press either putting on them that they should win it or telling them that they haven't a hope. Um, and then specific moments like um, Terry Venables having to announce that he was leaving the post after the tournament and uh, a, a very... A heavily reported incident involving a Hong Kong nightclub and subsequent plane journey home where damages were done. The and dentist chair. chair. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a lot of kind of specific and general instances that there's a, just round the clock coverage of this England team and, and uh, journalists pontificating about them. And uh, one of the early mentions for professional arsehole, Piers Morgan. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so before the tournament, as you, as you mentioned, they, they all went over to, 
to Hong Kong and China. Uh, please don't look up the headlines from the tabloids for those. I don't even want to repeat them on air. Uh, and they got very drunk and there was the dentist chair incident. Uh, and then splashed on the back of the of the sun was disgrace, fool, uh, F-O-L-L. And it was a picture of drunken Paul Gascoigne. And he was described as a drunken oaf with no pride and no shame. Uh, on on the front page, and this was about two weeks before he was the hero of the entire country for a goal we're about to mention in just a little bit. So it's it, uh, Terry Venables was was not happy because in May uh, he had to announce that he wasn't going to be the manager going forward. Glenn Hoddle had already started to kind of move into <laughs> to the Bishop Abbey <laughs> setup, was hanging around the training ground, like watching sessions and stuff with a notepad, and I think he was. Pretty really fucked off about that um i mean venables the fa and their relationship with him he's a bit of a you know he's a proto red nap before there was red nap there was venables and your sort of wheeler dealer kind of situation uh i mean looking at some of his business things portsmouth fans hate him for a reason <laughs> I mean, you don't even have to look him up as much as uh, just go onto YouTube and search Terry Venables, Eamon Dunphy. Uh, and, and Dunphy's done the legwork for you there. Exactly. Uh, and everything he says is pretty spot on. But yeah, it was, it. there was like a real kind of level of, of, of moralizing in the press about all of the things and all of the players and the stuff that they did. And, you know, instead of just letting them go out there and do whatever and blow off steam and come back and like, I don't think there's any other country that I could think of in Europe where the, the press would knowingly publish stories to try and harm the team as as this country and you know bef- years before this you had Graham Turner uh, Graham Taylor's head next to a, a turnip and a pile of shit uh, on the back of a newspaper they absolutely eviscerated the, one of the most graceful brilliant human beings to ever live in Bobby Robson just because we happen to have a bad Euros in 88 and they, they put so much pressure on trying to make him go so this is kind of the norm as to how the press behaved then and I only really think it's got better in I want to say the last maybe four or five years yeah because obviously the very next tournament you were in everything happens with David Beckham <laughs> you know, uh, Euro 2004, you've got the crucifying of Cristiano Ronaldo. 2006, like a, you know. the whole Baden Baden wag stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, our press are um, pond scum, um, is probably the, the <laughs> nicest way of putting it. So, yeah. Uh, but before the tournament, that was kind of what it is. And do you know what? There wasn't an actual lot of talk about the football. The only thing they were saying really is that kind of Venables was a bit too reliant on former Spurs players bringing in Anderton and sharing him rather than say like someone like Ian Wright who'd been playing very well um you know <laughs> everything was just nonsense and it wasn't actually about football so yeah that's kind of where we were it's, wor- it's worth notice- noting about uh Sheringham and the dentist chair's incident where uh, Shearer has leveled at him that he was the ringleader of the operation. And in spite of the fact that Sheringham was uh, as leery as the rest of them and completely shirtless in the photos from the nightclub, he insists he's just very easily led. Yeah, but notice uh, there, wasn't any, <laughs> there wasn't any stuff about Sheringham because he, he wasn't as box office as them, say, like Gaza. Yeah. They found like a bit... Gaza still had his shirt on in the photo. Sheringham is like topless yeah. and having a great old time. <laughs> the uh, the punditry really focused in on this as the main story around the team. Um, 
before the first two matches so before the first match because nothing had happened yet and and this was the big talk of the media it's what they, they had a big video package on it and they had interviews with the media who were being criticized for their criticism they had interviews with the players um they just really built it up as this big feud and then after the disappointing second half performance against switzerland uh they the media went in on them by basically talking about how they they weren't in shape gaza in particular couldn't hack a 90 minutes match and um there was some really interesting footage during it. My favorite clip that they showed was uh, Gaza coming out of his house and or, or maybe just accommodation he was staying in. And there was, of course, a whole load of reporters and cameras parked on his, his uh, front lawn. And uh, he starts shouting at them kind of calmly, but still aggressively. And he's like, um, oh, you know so much about football. All right, let's, let's get a ball. We'll have a kick about one on one. You and me right now. Come on. Come on. What you don't want to, you know so much about football. Come on, one on one, <laughs> and just it just tremendous. And uh, uh, the other thing that stood out was Alan Shearer. Whenever he was interviewed about it, like he was pretty young. Like Alan Shearer then was a decent amount younger than all four of us are now, and yeah. he and came... looked about ten years older. Than yeah, all of us, yeah. yeah, that's fair. But he 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 comes across so um oh what would be the term like mature yes but just kind of like a, a wise old head and just a, an but he was he very much took umbrage with the media and he really had a chip on his shoulder about it they'd gone for sheer big time as well because prior to the he tournament, had scored, scored. scored yeah. so i think he was it nearly two it years it was 21 months i think it was 12 was twelve games or something yeah, like that? Yeah, twenty-one months, Nationals. twelve games. It, it, um, they were just, I was just awful gonna, to him. Sorry, I was just going to say. Um, I listened to a podcast recently with Darren Anderson on it, and um, they were talking about Euro '96, obviously. And he was saying that after the, the the game against Switzerland, Venables actually let the guys go home because it was a home tournament. He actually let them go home to their own houses the night after, and of course. There was a couple of drinkers who ended up going out on the town. <laughs> and um, after the second game, they were due to go home again. And Venables just turned to them in the dre- dressing room and was just like, well, obviously I can't let you do that now <laughs> because yeah. the, the press but, are just hounding us at this stage. Yeah, and he had insisted that if Venables, again, in that documentary I watched, he sat down with Shearer and he was saying that like he gave, when they were in Hong Kong, he let them go to the nightclub. And he's like, mm-hmm. it definitely still was the prevailing attitude at the time because it's something that, I, you know, we talked about Jack Charlton earlier and Jack Charlton was a big advocate for like, you need to blow off steam, you need to have the point when you need to have the point. Um, it was still a part of the culture very much at the time. Um, but yeah, it was kind of uh, once bitten, twice shy. So like whatever about, you know, Hong Kong was one thing and then it happens after the first game in the tournament. It's like, I'm not getting caught three times on this, like letting you go off on the piss. Um, so that's that's kind of understandable. Can we actually go through the England squad? Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, just before we get into the actual nuts and bolts, Dave, can I just... There's a few general things about that that were unique to Euro 96 that I was going to cover. So uh, you've already mentioned it was the first team to have 16 tournaments. uh, uh, First tournament to have 16 teams in it, European Championships. So there were six teams that making their debut at the Euros, which were Bulgaria, Switzerland, Turkey, a newly independent Czech Republic, a former Yugoslav Republic in Croatia, and Russia. Um, It's the first tournament to have three points for a win. 
It was the first tournament to feature and be won by a golden goal. And funnily enough, both mm-hmm. Euros, the only two Euros to ever have golden goals, were both won by golden goals, which is quite random. Um, there are only 64 goals, which was actually 21 less than Euro 2000 that uh, followed it. And uh, two out of the three Euros had finalists that met in the group stage. So in 1988, it happened where Netherlands and Germany met in the group stage. And it happened again in 1996. Spoiler alert. Um, not, to be, not to doubt Jack, but Jack, I, I got to correct you because you mentioned Ooh. Czech Republic um, and the recently independent Czech Republic. Yeah. Um, you're actually incorrect because I was reliably informed multiple occasions during the course of this tournament by one ron atkinson that they were actually czechoslovakia <laughs> and uh, they were not independent so i mean uh, i wouldn't question big Ron. i think so. you were just a little early there it must have happened a couple of years later because they were still czechoslovakia here according to ron yeah i, don't, I think they're still czechoslovakia according to ron i think if you if you rocked up to ron's house now he'd still be saying that but yeah, 1993. I don't, wa- I don't want to hear the things Ron would be saying if you rocked up to his house, to be honest. <laughs> Not if Marcel Dessay is involved, no. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting as well, like you talk about it, um, the ex- we, we talk about the expanded teams and you're talking about uh, getting your three points for a win. Uh, it's interesting to note as well that nobody did come away with three wins out of their group. So it was kind of like, you know, we had a, we had a good few teams on seven points, but like no group was a complete walkover for anybody in this tournament, which uh, has not always been the case. Um, you'll always find somebody gets it gets an easy go of it in, in more recent tournaments. But um yeah, let's just uh, bash on and go into Group A, and that is the group that contained England, Netherlands, Scotland, and Switzerland. I think what we'll do is we'll kind of uh, we'll take each group as it goes, talk about a few memories, a few games. Obviously, this group is going to be England dominated, but I'm just going to kind of throw the conversation out for each group. Uh, we'll just see where it goes, and then we'll kind of talk about the the elimination rounds. Then, um, so yeah, let, let's start with that Group A and the opening game of the tournament involving England and Switzerland. Um, uh, not the most thrilling game you'll ever see and and it's one of those um i i think that's the curse of a lot of opening games in tournaments is that everybody gets really really hyped up to see an absolute banger of an opener and i think like in the times i've been watching major football tournaments was the the opening of germany 2006 was a bit of a banger yeah that I was remember. that was the philip blom top corner smash goal yeah uh but other than that Sen- Senegal versus France, oh. despite being an upset, was a brutal game in 2002. <laughs> but I, I remember yeah. having one hell of an exceptional chicken fillet roll watching that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being so excited for World Cup 2002. That was a tournament I hold so fondly in my heart. Um, and then, like, you know, by the end of that France-Senegal game, I think to myself, maybe I don't like football. Uh, <laughs> it's just not for me. Um, but, yeah, like... Um, what do you think? Like I love so this is one of the ones I watched in the ninety six revisited. I, I I must confess I haven't consumed it as exhaustively as Alan had, and I think the only takeaway from that whole program, uh, for me in a significant way, apart from the fact that England came out of the gates with just a draw, uh, was the presence of uh, Kevin Keegan and Sir Alex Ferguson on uh, on punditry for the game, uh, which was bizarre. So awkward. Yeah, like this was the the I would love it season where Newcastle blew. Sorry, Alan, to bring up painful memories, where Newcastle bring blew a twelve point lead in January to lose the league by four points, and I could just imagine like, 
making this pitch nowadays to the two kind of biggest rivals in a league to, oh, yeah, would you come on and do punditry together like could you imagine bringing Jose and Pep on together oh. in a studio and just having them do the opening game of a tournament like unthinkable now oh, but let's do that <laughs> yeah well, oh I'm in favour of it for sure um, but was it kind of after all because I, I can imagine you know the excitement I get coming into a football tournament even if Ireland's in it I can only imagine the levels of excitement followed by being brought quickly down to earth by, by a draw Jack how, how was the opening game experience for you? Uh, yeah I think we we started very well in the opening game I think uh, in particular like the pace of, of McMahon in the first half was absolutely all over Switzerland and, and we looked good and we had a good energy about us but that that energy kind of faded a little bit in the second half, really. So, yeah, it was it was a disappointing one. I think people had kind of been used to the previous, like, four years of, of, of being very, very disappointed by England post-Italian 90s. So it was kind of like when uh, Turk Yulmaz equalised, it was just, yeah, of course, like, this is the script, you know, we're going to show all of this promise and then just do what England always do which was was kind of mess it up and and to Alan's point the the press uh were you know they had their sort of golden goose of of things to blame you know because of the whole pre-tournament stuff so I think that a lot of that narrative was weaved into it but realistically it was just a pretty canny tactical performance I thought from from um Switzerland so like the manager Arturo uh Georges he he'd actually you know won the European Cup with Porto um, and won the league in in Portugal and in France uh, with Porto and PSG. So, like he he was no mug of a manager. And uh, and Turk Yilmaz, who who scored the goal, happened to be like the the second all time goal scorer for for Switzerland. Uh, and you got like a a, a back two of um, Ramon Vega and Stefan Ancho, who both ended up in England after this one with Spurs and one with Blackburn and then Liverpool. So, it was a pretty decent. Uh, Swiss team it wasn't an amazing Swiss team but it, it seems like you could plug in what you've said like you know not an amazing Swiss team but a decent Swiss team any Swiss team I've seen at a major tournament <laughs> after this they kind of didn't really do anything else for the rest of the tournament but I was reading um, an article and, and Ramon Vega actually said going into this game that because of the way the press were about England all of the players were excited before the game because they were like, well, you know, we've actually got a chance here because they're going to be nervous and they're not going to be able to, you know, if something goes against them in the game, we're going to have a chance to really upset them. And he was spot on. The second that Switzerland scored, we looked nervy and yeah, we just didn't, we didn't put the game out of their reach, which were, was almost a mistake that we made to pay for in the next game as well. But uh, yeah, classic England performance, this one. Uh, Lee, what are your memories of this game? I remember being hyped up for the opener, all right, and then I think Shearer breaking his duck um, in the opening game was like a, a big moment. But then, like like Jack said, like the second half, England were just so turgid and just nervous, and it really felt like, ooh, this this might not go well. Mm. Uh, Alan, did you feel uh, a bit of regret embarking on your rewatch project? about like two thirds of the way through this game nah not at all I was so hyped up from the, the punditry beforehand that uh, <laughs> yeah. I, the game could have been anything I, I have a question for you guys and that is um, Jack I expect you maybe to be being just the, the 
in-depth football connoisseur that you are i imagine you studying tape from all generations on a daily basis so it may not have come to a shock to you but uh um dave and lee it was a shock to me how old this seemed when i fired it up were you taken aback by that because both the actual like like on pitch like just the way the stands were the way the goals were the jerseys just everything on the pitch looked old but just the actual presentation it was the the itv presentation obviously that we got oh my god it was so retro feeling i wasn't expecting 1996 to feel that that long ago <laughs> oh old wembley was crumbling as well out well that's i was gonna say like you know you mentioned the kits and the graphics and the jerseys and stuff like that but the fucking stadium was in bits as well <laughs> like really and all the stadiums all the stadiums looked pretty there is a couple of them i can't remember which ones in particular but there was a couple of the smaller ones which looked fairly ropey it was group d that was the ropiest of the ropey alan it was hillsborough and it was the city ground nottingham forest yeah, those that are was the two. Portugal, that was Portugal, Denmark, uh, Croatia, right? Yeah, that those are two C- city ground game, ha- uh, stadiums. City ground having considerably the the smallest capacity of any of them in the tournament. I think it was just about thirty thousand even, um, as opposed to everybody else was like you know it was thirty five thousand up to what Wembley is about seventy five. Uh, yeah, I think at I the think time Wembley could do eighty at the time if, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So, like, yeah, there's a real disparity there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would, I would definitely agree that it, like, it, it was 1996, and you know that was a long time ago. But it felt like it was 50 years ago, like in terms of how technology has moved and all the bells and whistles we have now, and the graphics and the sleek kits and things like that. And part of me wonders, you know, in another 20 years time, will we look back on, you know, football in 2020? And apart from the fact that there's weirdly no fans anymore at football, go, ooh, it looks so old. Because <laughs> it is, it is, Lee, isn't it? A shock to the system looking back. It, it feels like 1996 was just yesterday sometimes. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I can remember, like, old kits and, like, like you said, stadiums and stuff like that. And then, like, I have my, my son, Connor, who's now seven, and he goes back and watches, like, the Premier League years. And to, to him, it may as well like be prehistoric. <laughs> yes, silent movie footage. Like, <laughs> and I'll be like, "Oh, I remember this game." And he's like, "How? It's twenty-two years ago." And I was like, "I just remember. It's like it's ingrained in my memory." Whereas, like with him, you like you talk about Neymar, you talk about Messi, Ronaldo, stuff like that. Like, and I'm just like, "Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Let's go back and watch like 1997." <laughs> Lee is Connor close enough now in age to the age you were then? Probably. Around the same age I would have been for World Cup ninety four, not okay. 96. So essentially, essentially, roughly, it's the equivalent to you at this point in in ninety four ninety six, mm. going back and watching something from nineteen seventy. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Which is yeah. basically just a few years removed from 1966. And you remember when we were kids seeing that 1966 footage, how that seemed, like you said, prehistoric. Yeah, it felt like Pathé newsreel footage like that they'd play before a talkie. <laughs> I'm on the boys and watch the uh, World Cup 1966 highlights. Yeah, yeah, bully for England as they lift the jewelry <laughs> <laughs> Shambolic scenes of uh, jubilation all across the streets of England. <laughs> 
but we talk about the we talk about the second game uh, now where there's it's it's much more eventful and um it's England and if you, you want to talk about uh, a, a game full of uh, Jack in our group chat where we talk about the football likes to 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 sound the narrative klaxon if there is a team in this world that loves putting it up to England and trying to get uh, points off them more than Ireland it's the Scots. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> and the Scots were coming down and they fancied uh, really throwing out a spanner in the works uh, for England here. Um, and I, I don't know if England, Jack, were necessarily expected to come into this really needing the win. No, probably not. I think we'd come into it, you know, with the win in the bag already from Switzerland and then just, you know, a solid performance here to pick it up. But it was, you know, it was it. It's a two nil scoreline, and I think a lot of people remember, obviously, the Gaza moment. Um, it's kind of indelible. I think any time you see a highlight package of of England games, from like you know the, the the recorded history, that goal is in there. But we were one nil up in this game, um, uh, <laughs> and yeah. Scotland win a penalty. Uh, it was a. <laughs> It was a weird moment, and I think that was the point where it was like, okay, so we're one new up, and we've given another penalty away. And does anybody happen to remember why Gary McAllister missed that penalty, and who it was that, that yes. claimed <laughs> responsibility <laughs> yes. for the miss of this penalty? All right, Dave, do you want to tell us? I'd, that would be Yuri Geller. Correct. <laughs> How 90s can you get a Yuri Geller reference? Yeah, um... That that was like, and it was. Um, if, if I go over to to, to Alan now, um, it was a moment of madness where Tony Adams uh, brings a player down inside the box, like, and it was a tight enough angle that I thought, like, you could get away with like not necessarily going that hard in and giving away the penalty. But um, what a reprieve for England, and um, the power of bending spoons really came to help them out here. Yeah, this was a. Uh... A couple of minutes where, and this is another thing on the rewatches, you don't realize how squelched together all this action was until you see it again. It's like it's end to end stuff with major points of the game with the penalty save, and then right up the other end for Gaza's goal that we're going to talk about in a bit. But um, the 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 penalty was brilliantly saved by David Seaman, who um. Not to uh, not to cast my hand too much on uh, or play my hand too much with regard to my team of the tournament, but David Seaman was just utterly astounding right from the the start in this thing. He had himself a tournament. He was class. Yeah. Well, when when you're backed by the psychic energies of of Yuri Geller and millions of English people, uh, I did watch a clip of him on uh, on fantasy football with Spadil and Skinner talking about how yeah that was me me and the power of all the English people didn't want the go- the goal to go in and Frank Skinner in a moment of dead pan genius goes wasn't just that it was a shit penalty no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the ball uh, did wasn't move. a bad penalty to be fair to Gary Mack. No, it wasn't. No. Yeah, it it did move though the ball. Um, I think so. Scotland had come into this game and they they got a draw against Holland in their first game, so they must have felt pretty confident that if they could get something against England and beat Switzerland, they'd have a very very good chance of going through to the next round. So it it was a pretty big game for them. That nil nil versus Holland was one of the best nil alls you'll ever great see. Game, oh, yeah. That was that yeah. was a great game. It was it was one of those you'd say uh, Scotland won it nil all. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the goal in this game. 
which we, we kind of glossed oh, over. Oh, Gascoigne's goal. One of the greatest, one of the greatest individual oh. goals you're likely to see at one of these kind of tournaments. I'll go to Leifer. It was a moment of absolute genius. And this was the, this is the Paul Gascoigne that kind of everybody wishes they, they saw more consistently over the years. And he's the kind of, the, the real in modern times anyway the great case of you know what could have been if this player kept his head down like you're when you talk about Gascoigne you're no more than 90 seconds away from somebody saying god if, if Ferguson had gotten a hold of him in the 90s instead and you know put him on the right track and things like that but you know all that aside Lee, this was a goal of absolute genius oh this is like this is the goal when it comes to Gascoigne like um and I'm so happy that he had it happen at Wembley because after the cup final in 91, wasn't it when he did the, the horror tackle that took himself out? Yeah. Was that 91 or 92? Yeah, that, that, was, was 91, that was 91, it? But it's funny that you say that because in the semi-final Wembley before that, he scored the free kick against Arsenal and it was literally one of the best free kicks I've ever seen. And I'm far from a Spurs fan, right? So, yeah, it, it, that since then, he hadn't really had any moments at Wembley and this this was like five years later so it was pretty cool you're right to see it happen there and then coming off the back of the whole thing of him being responsible in inverted commas for the 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 shenanigans in Hong Kong and everyone questioning like you know he'd been playing up in Rangers for a couple in Scotland with Rangers for a couple of years and questioning was he was he up to international standard and to just see him like he fucking he destroys Colin Hendry like flicking the ball over his head and then the, the first time finish it's just like it doesn't get any better than that especially in an international tournament and the celebration as well the dentist chair celebration <laughs> I just think like it was so emblematic of of putting all of that nonsense to bed like England needed to win this game they put it to bed the question about Gascoigne being this that and the other thing puts it to bed with that goal like them parodying themselves with the dentist chair like much like Rooney years later when he when he has the fake fight with Phil Bardsley and, and knocks himself out it's just one moment that just completely eliminates all of the nonsense because once something is parodied like that by the people that are allegedly like perpetrating it or whatever then it it, it turns from a serious moralizing nonsense matter into that's just funny that's just Gaza look at what a fantastic player he still is and after that that moment is when the fever pitch levels in England went from kind of excited to holy shit, it's a home tournament, we're gonna win it and it's coming home. <laughs> and that's all it takes for us. That's when that's when you can imagine that the replica short sales just exploded. Everything after that game. Everything went up. It's it, it's just one of those moments, isn't it, Alan, where like a singular moment not only encapsulates a tournament, but like just explodes the whole thing into life. Uh, and I think you needed a strong narrative like an England team going deep in this tournament. That's what really separates a good football tournament from a great one is this kind of um, the stories that are told within it. Uh, and this moment is just it, it's iconic. Oh, yeah, it was it was huge. It's it's I'd say probably either this or the way England get eliminated is what people think of when they think of Euro 96. <laughs> it's The actual final is like maybe fourth or fifth on the list yeah, of things. And that, that was a final? I think that's being generous. Yeah. <laughs> was there a final? Yeah. <laughs> Jack, please, the floor is yours. Uh, let's talk about Gus Hiddings, Netherlands. Right, so weirdly... I mean, I'm I'm sorry to bring this up, boys. Despite having to qualify with a playoff uh, against Ireland, in England, 
pre-tournament favourites were the Netherlands. They're, they they were. I'm not sure why, but in the betting, and, and do you want to hear who was 16th just for a laugh? The Czech Republic. But like, I I think like on the basis of just someone listing out the squad to you alone, oh, yeah. it would put them high up. So, list. so like eight out of the 22 had just been in back-to-back Champions League finals with Ajax, for instance. So you've got in this, I'll just, sorry to interrupt Jack, but just to like the absurd level of talent and like a lot of them very young uh, in here. You've got Edwin van der Sar, Michael Reisiger, Danny Blind as the captain. You've got Clarence Seydorf, 20-year-old Clarence Seydorf, Yapstam, uh, who came in and replaced Frank De Boer, Ronald De Boer, Edgar Davids, Patrick Kluivert, Dennis Burkamp. Uh, like it's a it, Kaku is in there. It's a ridiculous team. Yeah, it, it it's mental. Ch- Chelsea legend Winston Bogarde. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, so one of my bullet points uh, I've got written down is holy shit, Winston Bogard actually exists because uh, <laughs> I yeah. saw him in these games. So there were two revelations of things that existed for me when I was watching Holland. Number one, Winston Bogard is a real person and not just a marketing concept. Number two, <laughs> Yapstam used to have hair, guys, and he had hair in this tournament, yeah. and it freaked my nut out, to quote Danny Dyer. What is going on with that? I just assume he was born bored and had grown up bored <laughs> and lived his whole life bored. Uh, but yeah. Slide tackled his own hair off at a young age. So one of the names you mentioned during that uh, sort of list of luminaries, Dave, <laughs> was, was Edgar Davids, and yeah. that was probably the biggest controversy of the tournament. Um funnily enough in in most international circles because uh over here like al said we were super super focused on england but during the tournament he he dropped edgar davids in the second game uh and edgar davids not only accused hitting of of racism for dropping him but he also said that he was too deep in the ass of daily blind and that's a direct quote to which gus hitting said okay bye and sent him home uh, now, I don't know if you boys have ever seen a, a major sporting star from your home nation be sent home during a tournament, but that was a pretty big deal over in Holland, funnily enough. Any examples of that you can think of? I don't know. No, I, uh, Lee, can you think of a, 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 a Netherlands team coming into a tournament, infighting, falling out? <laughs> Sounds I, weird. I am shocked to hear of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, you list out the names, like how this team aren't one of the great teams of the 90s. Well, I yeah, mean, it's just mind-blowing. I, uh, so, two, literally two years later, with with pretty much the same first 11, minus maybe like Peter Herkstra for, for Overmars, they got to the last four of the World Cup. Like, that's how good this team was. Like, it, it, it arguably a lot more difficult to get to the last stages of a World Cup than it is in the Euros. But but like you said, Jack, like they, they had to go through a playoff to get to this tournament. It's crazy. There yeah. was obvious problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Gus Hiddink is a great manager. Like, he, he's managed many different countries. The Wild Goose. Sorry? The Wild Goose himself. The Wild himself. Goose himself. You know, this is a guy that got South Korea to a World Cup semi-final, okay? Like... Well, him and FIFA. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> this guy's no joke. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, you, you said there's um, something uh, suspicious about that, Lee. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Jeez. No. Uh, uh, Anyway, so like after that David's incident and him having been sent home, they rock up to play England at Wembley. And I, before I say anything other than this tournament, I actually think this is our best result in a major tournament since beating Germany 4-2 in 1966. And to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a better result. Maybe not necessarily performance, but result for an English team in a major tournament. Did did. 
did this feel like um, payback for 93? Yeah, I I think so in a way, but it it kind of more to the point, Lee, is that any time we came up against a big challenge, a team that were kind of hyped in a tournament like this, because obviously like them knocking us out in 93 and stuff of, of qualifying and stuff, but you know, we we had our failure against Germany in 1970. Like, we were 2-0 up and we lost that game 3-2. You know, Maradona went ham on us in 1986. We came up against West Germany, which is our first really, really big test in, in Italian 90 and, and came up short in that game. So this one felt like an actual proper test and we managed to come through it. You know, all obviously all the other years of tournaments that we, we had, disappointing results against teams that maybe we were on an even keel with whereas this is like right we're beating a serious football team here full of world stars and we're actually performing and that that hype level that i mentioned from the gazagol earlier when you are four nil up with an hour gone against holland i I literally could feel the country vibrating at that point (laughs) yeah that that, that's fair like it's understandable when you when you take it in that context but I think you do also have to look at that, like, this was a troubled Netherlands team. Yeah, I mean, like, that that's coming off the Davids incident. You know that camp is divided, especially if there's, like, kind of racial tensions in there because you've got, like, four or five very prominent players um, in this team that were black, you know, like the likes of, of Reisiger and, and Seedorf in there. And you've you got to feel that, like, they kind of m- might have felt not great about this. So that coming into this game, everything was up in the air and you know what if you go back and watch the the highlights or, or the whole game like alan would have done holland had some chances here though they, they just weren't anywhere near as ruthless with their finishing like they had eight corners in the first half and, and and didn't take any of them do you know what else do you know what else holland had in this game go on they had a man who came on for the second half a man who was perhaps the only, I don't know if he was the only, but he was the only one that they made note of during the commentary. Non-professional footballer in the tournament. Johan de Kock. Oh, the Gary, the Gary Breen of Euro 96. Johan de Kock. You're going to have to tell me about Gary Breen because I didn't know that. But Johan de Kock, unusually for a top-level footballer, de Kock was a part-time player while representing the Netherlands at UEFA Euro 96. He was employed as a road engineer at the time. Absolutely close. Cool. And he started against uh against Scotland. He started definitely one of the games, but uh yeah, he, he appeared uh, quite a bit throughout the tournament. Was, uh yeah, uh Gary Breen had uh for two thousand and two had been released by Coventry right before the tournament. So like the um I had the official program because uh my uncle, his his father, um was uh one of the FAI uh, kind of like ambassadorial team that went over to Korea and Japan so he brought me back the official program and uh, Gary Breen is listed as like unattached or something like that in the well, program What wasn't Gary just waiting for Inter Milan to come in and give him that big money of course yeah it's a cover for his pal Robbie he ended up at Czech's notes West Ham the next season <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, in rewatching it, Alan, um, you're going from like a, a fairly low scoring group, a couple of two nils, a couple of draws, uh, and then this just explodes into life with five goals. So I'd say this was one of the one of the more fun experiences to rewatch. Oh yeah, it was it was class, and it was it was awesome at the time as well. Like I remember it just being an electrifying night. It was one of the, it was a weekday night game, and um, yeah, I was just 
it was so much fun. Um, just goals popping in, and like I said, me big time England supporter here, so uh, I was I was loving life and yeah, Shearer and and Sheringham uh, in particular being on fire in that game. It was just a, a lot of fun, and that uh, that game has Paul Ince winning a. Uh, winning a penalty in spectacular fashion with a brilliant piece of skill. Do you know about that, Jack? The little drag back. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was that was fantastic. It just everything about the the way we played in this game just seemed like that bit of skill from Ince is only kind of I would say topped by the the setup for the third goal. Just you know, the way we carry the ball through the midfield and we work it and it falls to Sheringham. You think he's going to wrap his foot around it and whip it into the far corner and just gives that little dummy sideways pass to Alan Shearer. And Shearer then just smashes it into the top corner. It's just... And I think... what Wasn't that such a big moment? Because that was the first time Sheringham had assisted yeah. the Shearer goal. And, and like they were making a big deal of, all right, well, this is... The you know the strike combination we've been waiting for. This is this is going to be it. Yeah, after shouting, why haven't you picked Ian Wright instead of Terry Sheringham? Uh, yeah. uh, Teddy Sheringham <laughs> over and over at Terry Venables before the start of the tournament. I'm going to get my um, Teddies and my Terries mixed up a lot. I think. So the group ends with England on top and Netherlands in second place, qualifying for the knockout stages. Uh, we'll move on to and pick up the pace. I, I was just going to Go say on. I want to make two or two or three little very quick bullet points. Rakoy's goal in the third game against Switzerland is absolutely amazing like it's such oh yeah it's such a good like he lets it run across his body and then just like hoicks it into the top corner at Villa Park and you're thinking wow like what could have been and, and Scotland had chance after chance in that game and if they just had one more goal they would have qualified Holland's goal in the 4-1 from Patrick Cliver actually qualified them for the next stage so it was weird yeah. like there was a little tremor of like people around the stadium who knew that that meant that uh, Scotland were out. So weirdly, that goal got almost as much reaction from the fans as uh, as, as England's goals on the on the day. Uh, and yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. I just wanted to just wanted to make that point. But yeah, that was their only goal in the whole tournament. Just just getting your digs in at Scotland again. I, I'm not. I just I think it kind of sums up the Scottish narrative of always being like disgustingly close to getting over into the last stages or the deep last stages of a tournament and then just having it snatched away from ridiculous fashions and yeah. yeah. They they wish they had the fourth game curse that Mexico do. Yeah. Uh also like seeing the Swiss team, I loved seeing Stefan Chapuisat. I he's one of my favorite low key Oh, that's just a name kind of guys and this is the the season before he goes on to to play for Borussia Dortmund and win the Champions League in 1997 so uh, it's a very cool to see him kind of in his pomp playing for the Swiss national team up up uh, up front alongside Turkey Mez. so yeah a bit of Lars Rick in 1997 Borussia Dortmund Champions League team absolutely <laughs> yep 3-0 in the final against Juventus Lars Rick and scoring with his first touch uh, fantastic team that they were Paul Lambert in the midfield too oh yeah that's uh, that's Group A and <clears throat> I think for the rest of the group because obviously with England being in Group A that had to be narrative heavy uh, because of you know it being England's tournament in a lot of ways um, 
Six, six yeah. other teams qualified for the quarterfinals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you won't believe it, but there are actually other teams in the tournament. Uh, let's talk about them a bit more abstractly, though, you know, for the sake of time and convenience here and kind of just rather than get into each individual match, let's just talk about the teams in the group. And, and something I want to talk about in, in Group B, uh, which is topped by France and Spain are the other team that go through uh, two points behind them on five. Uh, into the knockout stages and this is a France team that's obviously two years from now will be world champions um, and you know this a lot of the kind of the, the bones of that team are in there so like yeah, Frank Leboeuf is in there Laurent Blanc is in there Didier Deschamps is in there Marcel Desai Yuri Jorkaev Zidane Zidane Bichet de Lizarazu Christophe Dugarry Lilian Turam Fabien Barthez you know there's a lot of there's n- names you know um, and, and only more to come in, in in the two years before France 98 but um uh, we'll go to Alan first and like what, what are your kind of um did this feel to you in re-watching and when you were watching at the time like a team that were on that upward trajectory that you could easily see them being world champions two years from now uh, or did it seem like they were still putting the pieces together my memory of France from this time was very much kind of Europe mid-carders is what I kind of thought of them. <laughs> and then they became European main eventers, world main eventers, mm. two years later and would hold that uh, hold that uh, position for a good number of years. Um, on rewatch, it's very clear that they were right on the cusp of being main eventers. And they were talked about as like the favorites of the tournament, which I didn't remember at all. They were really um, bigged up by by everyone um, around the tournament, commentators, etc. And what I would say, and again, take this as a grain of salt, I'm not a football man, but I feel the thing that separated them between 96 was literally just Zinedine Zidane didn't show up in 96, And he was incredible in 98. Because everyone else in that 96 team was awesome. Desai was amazing. If you want to hear a commentator just... Don't worry, I'm not talking about Ron Atkinson here. If you want to hear a commentator (laughs) just... If you want to hear a commentator, don't pick that one. If you want to hear a commentator fawn over a player, Kevin Keegan loved him some Marcel Desai. Kevin Keegan in general was a gem on commentary. He was really awesome uh, whenever he was on. It was a treat. But uh, he loved Desai. Um, Desai was amazing. Laurent Blanc was just fantastic, rampaging forward. Um, uh, Lizard Azu was great. Taram was great. Although maybe Taram was not quite at the level he would get to, but he was still really good. Jorkaev had flashes of brilliance throughout the tournament. A little inconsistent, but definitely flashes of brilliance. Um, and, oh, uh, uh, Didier Deschamps was awesome. Really, really good holding things together, the glue of the team. It was just Zidane was not at the races at all. And um, he was kind of... I don't remember Zidane being like a guy that was well-known to me at this point and didn't become really well-known to me until the 98 World Cup. And it feels like that was almost something with the, the commentary as well, the English commentators. They were they didn't kind of talk about him like he was a, a world star. They There was one point um, where he did something crap 
and it was probably Ron Atkinson that would be this blunt. Um, he he says something like, "Ah, and he's supposed to be one of the top players in the world or something." Huh. So th- yeah, this would be the kind of um, the, the summer where he he got his move to Juve. Um, so he came into this tournament as a Bordeaux player, uh, and by the start of the following season was a Juve player. So I think you're you're dead right there, Alan, in saying that like this is right before the man announces his arrival as just one of the best of his generation for sure. Um, Lee, what what are your memories of France in this tournament? Like did like like I said, Alan, did they seem like they would be you know world championship material two years from now, or did it seem like a lot of kind of uh, disparate elements of genius that hadn't been strung together into something. See, I, I can remember around this time hearing a lot about France in like 92, 93, where they imploded in qualifying. And like yeah. they had, they had also only... very unusual for France. <laughs> <laughs> and they had, they had like guys like Cantona and Ginola at like in their pomp. And it's just like, it always seemed destined and very much like Spain, who we got on to as well. Like it always seemed destined that France and, and Spain we're just never going to kind of deliver on these big stages. Um, one player that uh, Alan actually left out is Patrice Loco, who at the time was like the hottest thing in French football. He he had helped um, Nantes win the league in 94, 95, I think it was. And he got his big move to PSG. And I think he'd been banging them in that season as well. And like he, he, I remember him coming in, and like he, he had the kind of the, the kind of short dreadlocks, and he was like this very distinctive player. And like I remember him being pointed out as the star of this team. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you, you list that that whole squad, and you can see the makings of the ninety eight team is there. But as a ten year old, I wasn't looking at them going, "Geez, in two years, like they're gonna fucking cruise to a World Cup." Didn't see it. Uh, what what about you, Jack? Um, do you do you have any kind of strong memories of of France in '96? Yeah, I think I think Alan's point about Zidane kind of not being at his best at that point is spot on. I I love watching Yuri Djokaev. Um, he's my primary recollection of uh, of this French team and just watching how so they had that sort of dual attacking midfielder role where Jukaev would sometimes be in the number 10 and Zidane would sometimes be in the number 10 and they would kind of revolve and, and Jukaev kind of Zidane was a lot more like workmanlike and uh he hadn't quite developed that fluidity that he, he got when he when he got like maybe last stages Juventus early Real Madrid whereas where Chukayev was much more imaginative in that role and, and some of the touches and stuff that you would see from him like Alan said as well inconsistent like he, not everything would come off but there was a guy who, who had a real bit of magic about him uh in, in that just in there behind the striker which to, to Lee's point I, I would have liked to have seen Loco play more because I, I think Duggery is a very kind of formulaic generic striker and and it seems to be that France kind of had that have that thing over the years of having like Yushivashis and even with your Giroux now um particularly guys who are not very prolific but are functional and and generally just bring out the rest of the team into the game you know they they had the Henri era and stuff obviously in between all of those players but it, that that's just kind of a trademark of of the French team um they they really ease through this group stage as well. Like the teams in here, this if you look at this group, it is kind of a group of death. But but France found every game very comfortable. They didn't really look like they were breaking too much of a sweat. 
Um, this is Lillian Taram's first ever international tournament, by the way. He's the um, the record ho- holder for for caps for France. Rolls Royce of a player. Oh, a fantastic player! You know, um, love the fact that he only ever scored two international goals, and they were both in the same game in a World Cup semi final. <laughs> like that that is just one of the coolest stats in international football ever. Um, but yeah, that the main things that were knocking them back in this group as well. Funny, like. Um, Desai and, and Stoichkov got into a real kind of tit-for-tat where they were kicking and scratching and pulling each other's shirts and stuff. And, and I know after the game, uh, Desai accused Stoichkov of, of saying some racially insensitive stuff to him as well, which kind of went under the radar. Because I think when a lot of people look back at Stoichkov's tournament, they kind of just remember the three goals in it. But um, there was definitely some heel behaviour. And as well, France were, you know, uh, the national team, like Lee said, obviously, where... Cantona had kind of been excommunicated for his ways and, and they, they kind of turned on Ginola as well because of him giving the ball away and then not qualifying for a tournament. And then you've got someone like Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, who, if people don't know who he is, is not a particularly nice man, and that's, to put it bluntly... But, <laughs> Doesn't have particularly nice children either. <laughs> but but he said about this French team, like before the tournament, he said, I find it artificial to have foreign players come play in France and call them French and he said most French players don't even know or don't want to sing the Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. And it's just completely off the mark. Because if you look at the, the guys in this team who are, who are pulling the strings, it is Desai in midfield, it is Jokayev behind the striker, it is Zinedine Zidane that you're going to, Lillian Turan bombing up the wings. And, and just something like that is so unhelpful. And I think after those comments and after this tournament, the, the French very much had this thing of like saying everybody you know like much much like the the kind of slogan for france of of, you know fraternity being the key word there the brotherhood i think this tournament and the reaction to france going out and 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 one of their players getting crucified which which i'll mention when we get to like later on in the tournament the french football fans and federation this whole experience really formed that sort of emotional thing for them to be able to take it to the next level and uh, it just kind of really coalesced and gelled a lot more for France after this um, The other team that qualified uh, Spain we mentioned this is not the Spain that we know in, in modern day as kind of Lee was saying like we had kind of uh, over the course of our lives and a long time before that we'd become accustomed to thinking of Spain and France as bridesmaids in international tournaments uh, and kind of for the casual football fan going forward, I think the most recognisable names here in this team are Bolton legend Fernando Hierro, uh, Canizares and Luis Enrique. Um, the, the thing I really notice about this, and I'll start with Lee, um, is that unlike what kind of during the, the era of kind of Spanish hegemony in in major international tournaments where they just felt like, you know, lol, Spain wins everything, um, where it was just Barcelona, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Real Madrid, that was every player coming into that squad seemed to be from one of those two clubs. In this tournament, I'm looking at the squad list and I'm seeing Real Madrid and Barcelona, obviously, but I'm also seeing Valencia players. I'm seeing Zaragoza being represented. I'm seeing Athletic Bilbao, Tenerife, Deportivo La Coruña, Real Betis, um, Sporting Gijón even uh, have a player represented here in the tournament. Uh this wasn't the, the, the style of Spanish football or the, the, the calibre that we'd come to know of in kind of more recent times. Um, but, you know, they made it through the group. 
I think that kind of very much speaks to where Spanish football was at the time. Um, like La Liga wasn't this kind of destination yet for for world footballers. I mean, you had you had the great Barcelona team of like the early nineties, Cruyff's team. But apart from that, like Real Madrid weren't in. They weren't what Real Madrid were to become at that time. Like later on, um, like players weren't moving to Spain all that much. Like yet. Whereas Italy and England were the two big two early on the nineties, like, um, yeah, no, I, I think the players kind of being spread out around La Liga speaks very much to like Spanish football just wasn't in a very healthy place at the time. Yeah, um, do you do you have any, uh, and maybe you would kind of have fresher memories than us having rewatched it, Alan? Um, any thoughts on Spain at the time? It, it is kind of like I said, unrecognizable from the Spain that that would pass people to death 15 years later um but were there any highlights for you uh watching any spanish stuff in this tournament not really they were trash they were (laughs) they were really bad and they were one of the luckiest teams in the tournament to uh to make it into the the second round um there was a team we'll talk about that didn't make it into the second round that were so leaps and bounds ahead of Spain. Um, yeah, they were they were very unimpressive. Um, I remember uh, Alfonso, the striker, purely for being incredible in uh, CM2 97-98. Uh, <laughs> Real Betis legend. Um, but he uh, didn't get up to much in this tournament. Hierro was pretty decent. Nadal was a guy that they seem to be missing at the start of the tournament uncle of uh, Rafa Nadal um, and but then when he came into the tournament he ended up just kind of just barging people over and hacking people so maybe they didn't miss him all that much um, oh do you know who the star of the team was do you know who did have a good accounting of himself oh Barjuan himself Barjuan Sergi hmm um, Jack um, both your kind of Thoughts on Spain in this tournament and uh, we'll just get you to kick off with the other two teams in this group as well, Bulgaria and Romania, although I, I am aware that might be just opening the floor for the Dan Petrescu power error. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about Dan Petrescu for conservatively 83 minutes, but I won't. Um, <laughs> Please, for the love of Jesus, don't. <laughs> I mean, I look at Spain coming into this tournament and they didn't lose... A single game in the qualifiers, right? I mean, so and in their group, they had Denmark, they had Belgium, Macedonia and, and Cyprus, um, obviously not quite in the same league, but they, they had a relatively tough group and, and, and they came through it well. But it's just such an unexciting Spanish side. It, it, it's a complete opposite of, of what you would expect to see from Spanish football. It's, it's just formulaic, kind of keeping it very tight and... They had to come from behind in every single game, right? They were one nil down against Bulgaria, and they managed to find a goal uh, in the in the seventy fourth minute to to get back. Right? They were one nil down against France. They find a goal in the eighty fifth minute, and they're going out of the tournament uh, against Romania as well after like going ahead in that game, only to be pegged back, and then. Literally six minutes from the end, Armour manages to find a goal and they go through. That it's just so boring to watch them and a complete antithesis of of what you think uh, a Spanish team should be. And in fact, if you add up the number of minutes 
in the whole tournament that they were actually leading games, it's 24. So you've got a team that reaches the quarterfinals and they only have been leading games for 24 minutes in the whole tournament. To cover Bulgaria and Romania, so Bulgaria coming into this tournament, having um, shocked the world uh, in, in USA 94, having beaten Germany, knocked them out of the tournament and it just ridden on this wave of, of having a genuine Bulgarian world star in Christo Stoichkov, who, you know, who's playing for Barcelona and uh, aside from maybe Berbatov, there hasn't really been a Bulgarian footballer anywhere near of this calibre since and probably even like before that you would have to go like up into your black and whites to see a guy as good as him and he managed to score in all three group games like as as an actual footballer on the pitch he was fucking magnificent in this tournament and and they were very unlucky to miss out I actually think that I enjoyed watching them play a lot more than I enjoyed watching Spain play and Stoichkov's last ever goal in a, in a big tournament as well, which is, is sad because he went to like World Cup 98 and Euro 2000, but they managed to find the back of the net. But he scored an amazing, mazy run against Romania at St. James's Park, where he, t- he just kept smashing the ball forward with his left foot. And it, it very much reminded me of a sort of Gareth Bale goal where he was just sprinting and ha- hitting it with his left foot, completely ignoring the existence of his right and, and, and rifling into the goal. And a beauty of a, of a free kick against France, even though they, they lost that game 3-1 and that was ultimately to cost them. But this was still a pretty good team. They still had Lechkov in there. They were still relatively solid. So it, it's kind of sad that there wasn't maybe a bit more of a run for them because I think England would have found it more difficult coming up against them than they probably would have done coming up against Spain. As for Romania, really poor showing from them. They'd reached the World Cup quarterfinals in USA 94 and they only scored one goal in this whole tournament, which is Florin Radicu, who obviously caught Harry Redknapp's Wheeler de la Rye because he rocked up immediately to West Ham after this tournament, after having won the Champions League with Milan in 94. Funnily enough, he was part of the fringes of that squad, but managed to score two goals in 11 games before disappearing from East London. And sources say he's never been seen since. This is Hadji just before he got his move to Galatasaray and became a legend there as well. But had a pretty ineffective tournament. You know, this is the same team pretty much that were a massive bet noir for England just two years later when they managed to get a win and <laughs> knock us out, uh, or not, not knock us out, but knock us into a more difficult game against Argentina. And then they all dyed their hair blonde when we got to the World Cup round of 16. Obviously, they went out to Croatia after that, but that was the same team that had that iconic moment. And yes, Dan Petrescu, Popescu. How could you not have mentioned Ili Dimitrescu? Yeah, Dimitrescu as well. Yep. Part of Spurs' uh, front five under Ozzy Ardiles. <laughs> yeah, part of Spurs' front ten under Ozzy Ardiles. Uh, who, who else? Who else you got in there? You got Popescu, Dimitrescu, Klinsman, Anderton, Sheringham. Yeah, Barnby. Yeah, Barnby. Yeah. yeah, Chris Armstrong. You can chuck him in there for a little bit as well. Rule Fox. Um, no, yeah, Rule Fox was a Newcastle player. What are you talking about? <laughs> Alan, I, I hate to inform you, but he may have also played for Norwich and Spurs, mate. I'm, I'm sorry to say. You know, it's funny. I was, I really, when when I got into to Newcastle, Real Fox and Andy Cole were like two of their most exciting players. They were, Cole was banging in the goals like they were going out of fashion. Real Fox was setting them up for them. And they both left the club around the same time, I'd say. And Real Fox, I 
had no ill will towards whatsoever and wished him all the best and was um, happy for him and any success he would go on to have in his career. Andy Cole, on the other hand, I called a, tra- a traitor and threw a pen at his face at a dinner function when I was 11. <laughs> what? Ah! <laughs> Alan, I can't, I can't imagine this behavior from you, sir. Yeah, I, uh, I, um, for starters, I had disgraced, uh, I had disgraced the people who uh, had brought me along because I didn't, uh, dress up, um, in, uh, in nice attire. Unlike, it was, my friend's dad was, um, he was like starting a sports management company or on the board of it or something like that. And Andy Cole and a bunch of other players were, were over in some hotel in Dublin for this function to, to do with it. And we got in the car and my friend had been uh, dressed up by his parents in a nice shirt and trousers and all this. I was wearing a Beano jumper with my Newcastle jersey <laughs> underneath. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I when I got to meet Andy Cole, I pulled up the Beano jumper, pointed at the Newcastle crest, called him a traitor and drew a pen on his head. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> But then Jesus. I asked, I still asked him for an autograph, and he still signed the <laughs> autograph. Oh, top man, Andy Cole. <laughs> that is unbelievable, mate. That is, that, that, nothing will top that on this podcast. Yeah, we may as well just wrap up now. <laughs> oh, fuck. So like we were saying about Bulgaria, Romania. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lee, um, I... No, I, 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 can't, I can't top that, No. <laughs> <laughs> no other memories of the Did group. Did you throw no. any pens at any Bulgaria players over the years, Lee? I, I can't say I have, Alan. I don't even think I've I've seen any in the flesh. <laughs> um, but no, I, I I have no memories. Like I like I say, I watched the highlights of this group, and nothing at all stands out. Stoichkov's goals, though. Uh, Stoichkov's three goals in three games. Go like, and watch those goals. Yeah. Oh. Um, I, I think, at the, uh, you know, for the sake of, I, I see what group is coming up next and there's a lot of things to talk about. And so we will move on to Group C. Group C, Germany, the Czech Republic, Italy and Russia, with Germany and the Czech Republic qualifying for the knockout stages. The big story of this, and it's the one that uh, somebody is prepared to write some narratives on, as as he alluded to at the start of the programme. One of the big stories of this group is Italy failing to qualify uh, which I would class as one of the stories of the tournament, is you have a team in there that has Maldini, Nesta, Costa Corta, Del, Young Del Piero, uh, Di Matteo, Casaraghi, Ravinelli, Zola. Um, I suppose that the question for the panel here, and, and we'll go to, to Alan to, to write history's wrongs here first, but um, what went wrong? They got a really bad break at, uh, they looked awesome in their first match. They absolutely... Gianfranco Zola was... Throughout the, the three games, he looked phenomenal. Um, he was their best player, I'd say. Even, um, actually, Pierluigi Casaracchi, who's a guy who I uh, uh, I kind of, in my head, remember as being quite um, inconsistent. Um, he was fantastic during these games. He was putting away a bunch of chances and they looked really good in the first match the second match they just get completely they didn't really play badly but they just got completely shocked by a Czech Republic team who had been so mediocre in their first match against Germany that then just came out of the traps like a completely different team 
in the next game against Italy and Italy were really unlucky with how that game unfolded and then it comes down to the final set of games in the group which is just such a nail biter you've got um, uh, Italy versus Germany on one side and you've got Czech Republic versus Russia on the other and Italy and Germany are having this match where Italy are coming over and over so close to getting the better of the Germans and the Germans are just getting stroke of luck after stroke of luck to keep Italy at bay and meanwhile on the other side it's all looking good for Italy until Czech Republic just put in this big turnaround at the end and just dramatic last few minute goals and Italy go from they could have got themselves there to okay they're not getting themselves there but things are going okay on the other side they're still going to get through to oh no everything's gone wrong and now they're out I think Italy's big problem in this tournament was probably one of their it's also something that was good for them, but I think ultimately kept them, held them back was their manager Saki. He I is th- their big problem. He yeah. is the problem. He he didn't embrace this great generation of attacking players that he had at his disposal, and like ultimately he was too rigid in his his kind of the way he wanted things done instead of just saying like right I have Del Piero I have Casaragi Zola Baggio. Uh, Donadoni, like the list go on, like Delivio, like all these players, Ravanelli, and Italy should have been this great washbuckling football team, and they just weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Jack, your thoughts on Italy in this tournament, and I suppose we'll get you to start the ball rolling on the other teams uh, we want to talk about uh, in this tournament, being Czech Republic and Germany. Yeah, so I think coming into this, most English fans' second team was Italy just because of the exposure of Football Italia. Like, it was the only free-to-air football that we could consistently watch week in, week out in this country. And Um, the blue version of Championship Manager 2. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, right? So anyone that had the Champman 2 knowledge and and was a, a Gazetta watcher like myself was really excited to see what what we could have with with Italy but to Lee's point Saki I mean even pre-tournament Saki he leaves out Robbie Baggio who absolutely just destroyed World Cup 94 he was the best player in that tournament and it wasn't even close even better than Romario and Bebeto in my opinion he carried a beyond mediocre looking Italy team uh, with with Saki as manager to the greatness in, in that tournament and he's left out here. He excludes Gianluca Viali who has just literally captained Juventus to the Champions League and was fantastic in doing it. And he leaves out Beppe Signori who is the reigning capo cannoniere for Serie A at the time and just scoring goals for absolute fun like it was kind of going out of fashion. He's not there as well. So you've got these three. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I, you know, Enrico Chiesa and Fabrizio Ravanelli as the backup two strikers. That they're very, very good. But if you had the choice, you probably take Signori. You probably take Viali, and you definitely sacrifice a midfielder and try and figure out how to get Baggio in this team because obviously he's a more traditional number ten. And you know, this the specific 
rigid 4-4-2 Catanaccio that Saki deployed so well. And in, in the late 80s uh, with Milan and those back-to-back Champions League teams, it really worked fantastically and he had the, the perfect players for it. But it, it, like Lee said, it's a swashbuckling squad. It's a sort of squad that you want to see just flying down the wings, whipping balls in, getting picking up balls in between the lines and playing passes and stuff. And, and, and Zola was kind of that guy uh, for this team, and, and the way that him and Kazaragi linked up specifically in the first game was was poetry in motion, and and they beat Russia, and it was only two one, but it could have been four or five one for the performance, and then Saki drops his second major bollock, and he's like, right, well, you know, we've won that first game comfortably. I see Czech Republic, they're not that good, they lost to Germany, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Delivio, Di Matteo, Del Piero, Kazaragi, and Zola out of my team. Bringing Fuser, Dino Baggio, Donadoni, Chiesa, and Ravanelli. And they'll just be fine. And you know what? Half an hour in, red card for Apolloni, one of the centre backs. He's gone down to 10 men. And just like the cohesion wasn't really there. And they get overwhelmed by a Czech team who just probably could not believe their luck at that point. That they've taken all of these players out who looked so good and gelled so well in the first game. And that. It's just a bit of disarray and it's almost like he was trying to accommodate all of these guys and he wanted to play them in the second game or rest them or I don't know what the the logic is. And I love Gianfranco Zola. Um, Not only is he my favourite footballer ever, he's actually one of my favourite human beings ever. I... Uh, I just any, any particular reason did he play for anybody you've known? No, no, no. Yeah, but of course he did. But, you know, as a guy, he, he's just a, a fantastically classy person. Um, you know, there are other players who have served long, long, longer than him for Chelsea that I don't have anywhere near the same level of affection for. Um, for instance, he was on the Match of the Day Top 10 podcast recently. Where are you, Gianfranco? Sardinia, why are you there? Well, with all this virus and stuff, I wanted to be closer home to my mum. Straight away, I'm like, this dude, like, just what a lovely guy he is. Um, uh, he misses the penalty against Germany in the eighth minute. And after being sent off so for, for literally nothing in, in USA 94, he has another just horrendous major tournament uh, happening by missing this penalty. And a lot of the blame that that seems to be leveled at him after. And, and it sucks. It's crushing because he's such a, like a lovely guy. And you know what? He took it on the chin and he went back to Palmer and Ancelotti's like, look, I'm probably not going to play you because I have a similar rigid formation that I don't think you're going to work in. And he comes over to England and he wins Football Writers Player of the Year for Chelsea. And bear in mind, he signed in November. So you've got like three months of season that he wasn't even featured in. And he still managed to pick up the Football Writers Player of the Year. So he recovered really well. But I just think it's really sad. Um, the only other weird t- thing I will say about this Italy team is Paolo Maldini got named in the team of the tournament <laughs> or, or the squad of the tournament. And I kind of feel that's one of those decisions that they made pre-tournament where they're like, well, we're putting Maldini in here. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's Paolo Maldini. <laughs> that's fucking Paolo Maldini. You've got to put him in the team of the tournament, like, regardless. And, you know, he was good, but I, I don't know if I would have put him in the, the team of the tournament. But, yeah, I, oh, God, it hurts. It hurts to think of this team and, and what could have been and, and, and just how badly managed it was by Saki. And, yeah, what a generation. That 90s generation, they, they deserved so much more than than we got and even in Euro 2000 you think of the next Euros France stole that final from them and a lot of these players you know 
there were a few hang- hangovers in the 2006, like Del Piero was still playing. And, and like Alan said, he was just wasted out wide in this tournament, playing left midfield in the first game by Saki. And it's he's that good that it kind of worked, but you know that's not where you're going to get the best out of him at all. Um, it seemed like they had so many of those sort of floaty number tens. They just they were coming out of their ears and they didn't really know what to do with them. Um, you know, if if they only had like you know a, a Spanish approach to things, it, it might have been interesting. But oh god, it, it sucks! It sucks that this Italy team didn't get through because I think they would have been really really good if they got into the last stages of the tournament. So yeah, in terms of the rest of the group, obviously you know we've spent ages talking about Italy that didn't even get through. <laughs> uh, but but Lee, uh, Germany, Czech Republic did get through. Um, obviously, the, the, the might of Germany in any football tournament is nothing to be messed with. But uh, Czech Republic as well, quite a story in this tournament because of how far they went. Yeah, I mean Jesus, like your international debut and they get all the way to the final. Um, my mind was blown actually when watching watching some of the highlights. Vladimir Schmitzer was playing for Czech Republic in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, and scored in, in in one of the. And games. he scored, yeah, that's it. He scored in the group stages. Um, I was blown away by that, considering what he went on to do in two thousand and five. Yeah, I assumed <laughs> um, he was like eleven years old when this tournament was happening. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was thinking. I was like, oh well, he was like mid twenties when he signed for Liverpool. Like, he couldn't possibly have been the same Vladimir Schmitzer. <laughs> but that, um, that just goes to show, like, how little we knew about the Czechs. Like, oh, yes. Like, 15 out of the 22 players in this Czech squad had only ever played in the Czech Republic. So nobody, like, you can take your Eurogirls uh, show, Lee, from Eurosport. <laughs> ain't no fucking way I'm seeing Sparta Prague versus Slavia Derby on there. It just ain't happening. So we didn't know who any of these guys were, really. No, like... Uh, it's it's crazy to look down through the list of players and just go like where where these guys would end up playing like it's like almost a who's who of what would become European football like Pavel Nedved like I think Cernicek was probably the most well known in in you know, you know in England and Ireland and he didn't play <laughs> yeah <laughs> like there you go like so it's like amazing like you have Patrick Berger you have Paborski um, Novotny went on to be a, a decent player. Paul Kuka as well. He was Kuka very well, good yeah. in this tournament. Um, but it, it's just amazing like how they came from nowhere and made it all the way to the final. And like that's out like something coming from a smaller country like three of well three three of the four of us do. Like seeing a country of that size get to a, a, a big final is stuff we dream of. Their sixteenth favourite coming into this, according to our bookmakers, and that win against Italy. All they needed to do in that last game was get a draw or match whatever Italy's result was. And they were 2-0 up at half-time and cruising. And then Russia come out in the second half and score three goals. So it's not like this is a particularly watertight, experienced football unit because they, they conceded six goals in the group stage. But they kind of chanced their arm and they managed to find an equaliser two minutes from time. It, it was one of those ones where it was like the way they just kept coming up time and time again with results and you saw all the players that Lee mentioned like Nedved joined Lazio that summer, Poborski joined United that summer, Berger joined Liverpool that summer so from all these guys coming out of the woodwork and not really doing an awful lot this tournament was a cannon for a lot of these players to be shot into the really big leagues in Europe and the kind of hearts and minds of everybody there so it's a pretty cool thing to see a team like this and and everybody loves an underdog and uh, obviously given when they did make it to the final and who their opponents were they 
were uh, heavily supported in this country after after the events of the last stages of this tournament. <laughs> Big Jack Charlton was uh, on the punditry that we got on the on the retro shows. Maybe I don't know three times total, and in that three times, he probably talked about ten times about what teams he had backed. in various matches and uh for the tournament as a whole and like literally just talking about having gone down to the bookies earlier in the day um just out in the open um i don't think uh big jack would have had much money on czech republic going into this if he did he was laughing all the way to the bank that's for sure do you want to hear one cool fact about the czech republic in this tournament as well they scored seven goals in the Euros, and every single one of them was by a different goal scorer. So Radek Babel, Patrick Berger, Pavel Kuka, Pavel Nedbed, Karol Poborski, Vladimir Smitsa, and Jan Suchaparik. So that's pretty cool. Like normally, you're going to see a team get into the final, have at least one goal scorer who like stands up and grabs a few goals to get you there. But uh, every single goal is shared out across the team, which just does go to show like the there was a genuine finishing quality to some of these guys, even if they were a little bit rough around the edges. And they had a deep squad because in the yeah. semifinals they had like a load of their guys were suspended or injured, so they had to field like a bunch of um, dudes who hadn't featured much in the tournament, and they still managed to to get through to the final. How boring were Germany in this tournament? I thought they played really well in their first two matches and, and looked uh, very good, and then in the third match, um, they provided the the foil to Italy for like as I said a really exciting nil all draw where like they were annoying and frustrating with how lucky they were in that match although they had qualified already so um you can't be too uh, peeved at them but i mean it was i wouldn't call it boring at all and then they were just very specifically consistently good which is something you can't really say about too many of the other teams in this tournament i've got four bullet points for russia uh they qualified without losing a game but they were in a group with scotland greece finland the faroe islands and san marino so that's not really much of a much of a point uh vladimir beshatnik's 30 yard strike against the czech republic is awesome uh dimitri karin i mean just seeing him and his jogging bottoms on an international stage i completely forgotten that he played for russia in that kind of weather uh which was cool you know before gabor karai there was dimitri karin and his mullet and the joggers uh and just my last bullet point simply says andre kinchelskis <laughs> <laughs> so I can leave that one to Lee and Dave if they want to say anything about that guy. God, I, I loved Konchelskis. Like, I just remember, like, the 93-94 season, he was... Oh, he was almost un- unplayable at certain points of the season. And, yeah, I, I honestly, I don't remember much of him from this tournament, but just just saying his name brings me such joy. That's pretty much it. That's why I wrote his name down. Russia were, I mean, that they had one half in the tournament where they played well. Um, that was it. There, there was nothing else from them. We'll move on, though, finish off our groups. Uh, the group we have the least to say about, I would imagine, uh, Portugal, Croatia, Denmark, <laughs> you, and you Turkey. You would imagine wrong. I mean, there's one team in this <laughs> group go. I've got quite a bit to say about. But yeah. yeah, I think the thing to point out is, like, Denmark are coming into this as defending champions. Yeah. And they really don't put up much of a fight, do they? <laughs> I mean, Brian Loudrup seems to have a good tournament, but other than that, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I didn't see much from them. I think so. A lot of the generation in 92 that, that had been responsible for that result had kind of come and gone. 
uh, there was th- 13 out of the 22 players had 15 or less caps coming into this. So it was a Denmark team that were the very much in transition. I mean, like you would argue that they were spectacularly lucky to win the tournament in 92, having not actually fucking qualified for it, but only having to rely on the fall of Yugoslavia to, to get into the tournament. But yeah, it, it was a team in transition. So you had that, that, that tight spine of the loud drops and, and Schmeichel, uh, who all had like 70s and 80s of caps, but everyone else in the side was, was relatively new and they did very much look like rookies in a lot of their games. Alan, any thoughts on this group? I loved Portugal and Croatia at the time. Yes. I loved them on rewatch. When I when I kind of close my eyes and think of Euro 96, I mentioned some of the things earlier with regards to England, but I also think these two teams, um, yeah, they were... Portugal had so much flair, so much panache throughout their team. Um, some lovely hairstyles in their team, which, uh, spoiler, one of the members of the team will make my top three Euro 96 haircuts, which I'll have for you guys later. And um, Croatia, obviously, Davor Šukar is someone who everyone's going to think of um, uh, when they think of, of this tournament. They think of very specific great goal that amazing chip against Denmark um just as it happens uh I rewatched um that game on the morning of my birthday this summer so it was a real nice way to start my birthday was watching uh Davor Schuker score in that goal and it's just as great to uh to 2020 eyes as it was to 1996 eyes, but we gotta we, we gotta go around the table and uh, uh, and make a call each. The Davor Shuker chip or the Carol Paborski chip? Who? What have we got, guys? Dave. Uh, I'm going Paborski for obvious bias reasons. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm going Shuker because it's just a superior goal. I'm actually going to go Suker's goal against Germany because I think it was even better. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you, you hipster. The skill that he just does Kepka so dirty on that skill, man. He just waits for him to commit, just rolls the foot over and moves it slightly to one side and slots it. It, it was very nice. As if he was just, you know, out for a Sunday morning stroll and, a, and a, a, a kid's ball had rolled under his foot and he was just moving it to one side and passing it back to a happy kid in the park. That was the ease of that. Um, but in terms of the chips, I'm going to go Paborski because it went conservatively 4,000 feet up in the air before landing in the goal. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. There's a great UEFA's YouTube channel has like uh, some series about memorable goals and they interviewed him about that and he was just like he was he was like quite honest about it where he was just like I I was convinced that I had hit it way too high. <laughs> it, it, it goes it goes far too high. Yeah, it came down with yeah. snow on it. it yeah. <laughs> it's not even a chip, he just scoops it. It it's like it shouldn't work. <laughs> no, I don't understand the physics of it and I'd imagine like so many people after this went out into the playground or whatever. Oh my oh, god! Of course, constantly <laughs> doing it the next day and just would not have any. Like, how many Sunday league games do you think you saw the ball just like land safely in a goalkeeper's arms when someone tried to put balls it? All of them. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. So I. I just with Portugal in this group, by the way. Oh, hold on! I have to. I have to give my answer. I'm. I'm going Schuker, making the two all. Good and choice. And the reason being. Okay. Sorry. No. He, he chipped 
that prick Peter Schmeichel and I was still bitter <laughs> against him for uh, what had unfolded in the few months prior. Oh dear. I mean, why was Schmeichel oh like a potato? Because he was easy to chip. I remember being in a copy of probably Shoot magazine. <laughs> As a Every magazine, yeah. Yeah. After after the Albertine, yes. Yeah. Uh, it did happen to him quite a lot. Like the Perez one was probably the the, the meanest one, but he was at Villa at that point, guys. So I guess you didn't. Yeah, nobody shit. nobody cared. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking... Um. Didn't count. I just want to talk about Portugal's midfield three because they had a holding midfielder, but the three midfielders in front were were Rui Costa, Paulo Sousa, and Luis Figo. I mean, that just makes me trembly at the knees to just say those three names. Oh, what what a midfield that is! I mean, do, do, do you know what that is? That's like, again, I'll bring it back to my son. My son plays FIFA Ultimate Team all the time, and that's like, if you had that in your FIFA Ultimate Team now, like you'd be looking at fucking like an unstoppable trio. <laughs> yeah, and then they had Joao and Sarpinto in front of them, which is such a waste. Um, and it just seems to weirdly be the story of Portugal until Ronaldo kind of converted to that striker role a few years ago that they never have that like mainline striker um i thought joe pinto was awesome i loved him he was my favorite player he, he had become my new favorite player um along with 10 other players i was like rob naylor with favorite wrestlers when he was a kid i i had uh, a <laughs> 10 uh I had 10 players in my top three favorite players of euro 96 it's and like, joe pinto was absolutely in there he's, he's good but both him and sar pinto are one in four goal scorers and I can't help but think that, that that's what cost Portugal later on in this tournament because the spine of the team... Joe Pinto worked so hard, he though. Did. He was He was back tackling in defence. He was getting up and down the pitch. Yeah. But you don't, you don't want that from a centre-forward, though. That's the, the, the point, you know? You want your centre-forward being up Lee, front. I'm not a football man. I can't speak <laughs> on this. But, yeah, I, I think that work rate is one of the things that stands out if you, if you watch the game and, and you're not too cared about, like tactical positioning and stuff if someone's running around like you know Rooney when he was very young and he was just tech- he's, he's mm-hmm. winning a tackle at fullback and then he was heading it in like seven or eight seconds later up front those kind of players always stick in your head um Vlajevic's goal against Turkey where he basically runs most of the length of the pitch is fucking awesome for Croatia and Vlaovic is one of those guys that you know when people talk about Boban they talk about Boxic they talk about Shakir they don't Vlavic doesn't get that much of a mention, but he was a massive part of this team and the team that went on a did a very good job in the uh, World Cup in 1998. And, you know, I said about Czechs where you had, like, the, the vast majority of them within Czech Republic, the Croatian players, like, 12 out of the 22 had already moved to big European clubs. So if you watched them play, there was very much that sort of European flair about their style and and all of those players and the experiences that they were having in the leagues, like Shukair was was playing in La Liga at the time, you could definitely see that there was that more expressive kind of swaggery feel to the way Croatia played that just made them a little bit more enjoyable to watch than a few other teams. Um, and Turkey were trash. Uh, it was their first Euros. They were bloody awful. They scored no goals. They got no points. Um, the only thing notable is that they had Rushdu, um, Sukair and Tugai all in their early to mid-twenties. And in my head, Tugai has only ever been 35 with grey hair. So it was cool to see him as a young man. We'll kind of bring the uh, the group stages to a close uh, there and kind of go around the, the table and just see kind of like um, maybe anything we didn't cover or anything, uh, any particular highlight of the group stages. Uh, and, and we'll start with Lee. 
um have haven't watched back like many of the highlights i just i just it just brings back memory like good memories for me of watching the games at the time like you have those couple of standout moments like 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 i say Shearer getting his first goal was such a big moment in the tournament the Gascoigne goal for um against scotland like that was such again a big moment um Suker's goal felt very much like somebody arriving on the international stage like somebody that wouldn't have been as well known to like a 10 year old in ireland but that felt like again just something that you're never gonna forget um hmm. zola's penalty again that's something i can remember seeing at the time and and kopka saving it it was again just these are just moments that last in my in my memory and just, just stuff that i'll never forget uh what about you alan um, trying to think of anything I haven't really said. Um, no, not immediately coming to mind that I haven't um already gone through. So I'll I'll pass it over to Jack. Uh, something I haven't mentioned that I think is a bit tragic. Uh, from Group A, England. Jamie Redknapp came on against Scot. That is tragic. Scotland and. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 fair enough, right? But. I, he was fantastic. He changed the game. He had an energy and a dimension, and he went off injured. He came on at halftime. He went off injured after about 80-something minutes. And it was just like, wow, Like this is a 22-year-old. He looked really good in this game. Really unfortunate that he got injured. You know, He'll definitely be a fixture of the England team years to come. That was his last tournament appearance. And you just think, ah. Oh. Like at twenty two years old, yes, he was wallowing in the England B team with John Scales, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, and Rob, <laughs> Rob Jones in there as well. Um, that yeah, that was that was a pretty rough one. Um, to to go back and look at and see the impact that he had in that game, um, and yeah, just having a, a career that never really got going, just to be immediately blinked out of existence. Um, and the last one probably is from Group D that I didn't mention. Sakar in the game, he scores the um. He scores the the chip over Schmeichel about thirty seconds, maybe a minute before that. Schmeichel was up for a corner, and he nearly scored from the halfway line as well. Sicare, <laughs> and the the moment was fantastic because he smashed it from the halfway line. Schmeichel backpedal, backpedal, just about gets back to save it. Like tips it, pats it down, and then looks up and then just extends a big thumbs up to say, "You nearly got me." <laughs> That was a hell. That was a hell of a shot. Well done, but you ain't beating me like that. And then, li- like a minute later, that was when he beat some of the chip. And I just think that, like that setup, is often forgotten from that goal that that Sakar nearly gets him from the halfway line and then manages to get him from a chip even closer, which was pretty cool. But yeah, I think I've said everything else I need well, to say. Yeah, I guess that's it for the group stages then. Hi, Jack here. We actually had so much Euro 96-based content for you that we're going to spin it off into two podcasts. Something about me and Dave when we got on the same recording, and then you add the low-key genius of Lee Malone and the just straight-up wackiness of Alan Farrell when he's distracted away from the world of pro wrestling, and things tend to tend to go on a little bit. So uh, if you bear with us, uh, the second episode will be coming at some point next week. And uh, yeah, hope you join us for that. Thanks, guys.